Man, Tiger's having a problem. Son of a bitch. Tour 3's having a problem. They're probably getting attacked. God dang it. Excuse me. All right, let's try... All right, Tour 3 looks good now. There it goes. Let me try to rename Rumble. It just takes a second to restart it. <sighs> Can't win. Give me a second, podcasters out there. I'm trying to reset the stream here. How are you guys doing today? How's your day? What's for dinner? <laughs> Come on, you can do it. I might have to go back to restream. I just can't afford restream right now, man. Swing and miss on another mute button. You get to hear, listen to me swallow. To start a revolution, Gene Sharp's primer on peaceful protest. Peaceful protest. So look up Gene Sharp if you get a second. All right, Rumble. Please work. There we go. All right, Rumble's back. Now it's going to take a second to reset uh, Twitch. Give me a second, Twitch. All right. Rumble, you guys are good to go. Twitch, give me a second. <laughs> All right, Twitch is going to give me a second to get Twitch going, and then we'll get this going here. Of course. Think anything's going to work the way it's supposed to work when I do a show like DHS Leagues? No, we can't have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Five by five, Chris. Thank you for Rumble. Appreciate that. Let me get Twitch going here. Come on. You can you can do it. Hey, there we go. All right. And Twitch. Enable. All right, Twitch is going to be coming back in just a second, and then we'll kick this off. Sorry, guys. I just want to make sure that all the platforms are going for this because it's important, and I want to get through it. This is an article that was written almost 11, more than 11 years ago. So they say, you know, some of this information may not be current, meaning it's probably more truth to it than normal. Got my new system, start streaming in the next few weeks. Awesome, Karen. That is awesome. Hop in on uh, Fridays on the call-in shows and stuff like that and, uh, you know, start getting used to interacting and, and um, you know, give yourself uh, a chance to be in front of the camera and uh, test all your gear and things like that. So spend a, spend a day or, you know, or actually a week or two is what I would do before you, or at least a week, you know, of calling in to different shows and stuff and testing all your stuff. That way when you go live, you'll have uh, your sound and all that stuff worked out. All right, Twitch crowd. Refresh five by five. All right, all right, guys, should be good to go. 
Yeah, I, I just had a reset. I restarted both streams over there. So you guys should be good. Hopefully DLive is still good to go. Um, yep, you guys are good. All right. <laughs> Worth the wait, Fox Lager. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate you very, 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 very much. Okay, let's get back to this. To start a revolution, read Gene Sharp's primer on peaceful protest a few months ago. So this is an article in globeandmail.com from like 11 years ago. Just heads up. Uh, no, I don't need to subscribe, but you can go away. Can you go away? Yeah, you there you go. Okay. <clears throat> Again, so it's an article, but it's more for to, to lay the groundwork for this. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to hear that shit here. Take your drama to your mama. A few months ago, I attended a, go, go check out shit show. He's perfect for that stuff. <clears throat> you can have your, you can vent over there. A few months ago, I attended a huge demonstration in central London that had drawn people from all across the country to protest against the public sector cuts imposed by British government near Trafalgar square. I saw a wee fellow. Uh, not quite four feet tall and dressed entirely in motorcycle leathers, berate a police officer. How many working class people have you oppressed today? The cops smiled down at him and said nothing, but you could tell what he was thinking. If you think I'm landed, uh, if you think I'm landed gentry mate, you're as bad as a box of frogs. <laughs> you're as mad as a box of frogs. Uh, a little later, I stumbled across Nigella Lawson, and her wealthy art collector husband, Charles Sachi, who uh, Satashi, who watched the crowds in Hyde Park from across the street, a bit like Marie Antoinette and Louis the uh, 16th, getting a first quiver on their danger attene. It was that kind of a day. It was a wonderful day if you could block out the drumming, but ultimately a depressing one because the energy of half a million ticked off people did not lead to anything larger or more meaningful. I dissipated in the bright spring air instead of picking up steam over the next few months. I fear the same fates hang over the Occupy Wall Street movement since it's a vast potential at the moment seems untethered to many real world goals. I was thinking about all this while watching How to Start a Revolution, an ins inspirational new documentary about Gene Sharp, the 83 year old American academic whose writings on nonviolent political struggle have helped topple dictators and democracies around the world. Dr. Sharp, nominated for this year's Nobel Peace Prize, of course he was, comes across in a documentary as an unlikely revolutionary, though he did serve nine months in jail rather than be conscripted into the army during the Korean War. Modest and plain-spoken, the professor emeritus of political science at the University of Massachusetts shuffles around his house in Boston, seeming to care more for his beloved orchids than worldly glory. He's been accused of being a CIA agent um, by the government of Iran, perhaps a greater honor than noble, when young activists make the pilgrimage to seek his advice on booting out tyrants in their countries, he tells them they must figure it out for themselves. Or they can read one of his books, the most famous of which is From Dictatorship to Democracy, freely available on the Internet. Dr. Sharp wrote this book at the request of the Burmese Democrats in exile, and it was first published in Thailand in 1993. Processing a copy in Burma would get you seven years in jail. 
Until recently, Dr. Sharp has been largely overlooked. His teachings spread by his main allies, a young woman who was smuggled out of Afghanistan as a child and a U.S. Army colonel who fought in Vietnam. If you've marveled at color-coordinated color co-coordinated uh, pr protesters as in Ukraine's orange revolution or wondered why people in Iran carry placards in English, you've seen the influence of Dr. Sharp's thoughts. Interesting, is it not? Thanks for the donation, Space Coast Patriot. I appreciate it. His message reached the liberation movements in Serbia and Georgia, uh, Iran and Egypt and beyond. Dictatorships could be destroyed without violence if people working together removed the pillars of consensus and obedience that supported those regimes. But first, they needed to establish clear-cut goals and methods. In the documentary, which will be screened in One uh, World Film Festival in Ottawa on October 14th, again, this was 10, 12 years ago, so uh, at the University of Toronto on October 15th. Hey, son, good to see you out there. Dr. Sharp talks about being in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square protest. It's become, it became clear that the students in the square were operating with great commitment and bravery, he says, but they really didn't know what the hell they were doing. doing. The students had no plan. He goes on to say, if you don't know what you're doing, you're likely to get into big trouble. This Burjois, Bajoy's focus on actually achieving an outcome has, in in some ways, oddly undermined his message. The reason more don't know about Gene Sharp is because both the right and the left have rejected him, said Rhoda Aro, the Scottish journalist and filmmaker who spent two years making How to Start a Revolution. On the left, there's a suspicion of an emphasis on goals and strategies. Mr. Arrow, keeping an eye on nonviolent action around the world, says Dr. Sharp's influence is quietly transmitted through protest movements from lower Manhattan to the villages of Syria. There are many flavors of rebellion in the air this autumn, a nice change from decades of apathy. The Occupy Wall Street website insists that the movement is there's no official list of demands. Obviously, there's a difference in overthrowing a tyrannical regime and protesting against the inequalities of an economic system. There's another difference. One has an end game. The other so far doesn't. Does, does our movement have an end game? Just saying. So there you go. Uh, this is going into my library in DVD form and book form and every other way form I can find. That is going to be something that I'm going to be looking to. So that lays the groundwork. <clears throat> This guy doc has been uh, uh, at the groundwork, uh, or his, I think what it is, is his teachings have been used by the CIA, uh, and probably his recommendations in some way, you know, advising the CIA on how to th overthrow governments around the world, and that's why you're watching it happen here in America right now. Now, from Freedom uh, Foundation for Freedom Online summarized this report. And we're, I'm going to go through this whole report, and it's probably going to take me forever. This is Mike Benz's whole uh, report on DHS censorship agency, and I want to read the whole freaking thing because I want to inform myself on it as absolutely as much as possible. The summary starts here. And then after we do the, the full report on that, Mike Benz's thread from the Q&A session, we're going to go through that. So we're going, to, we're going to learn about as much of this as we possibly can, and I'm going to be studying this and paying attention to uh, every, every word that I read here as closely as I possibly can because I really want to have as much information on this as possible. So that's the plan for today. 
thank you all for being out there. Uh, thank you all again for the gold pill support and all the love, support, and prayers. Hopefully, all the platforms are holding strong now. Let me just double check in and see if everything's looking good. Looking good. Everything looking solid over there. I appreciate you all. Everyone on the Rumble crowd, you guys find a way back in? Yes, looks like you guys did. Thanks, guys. I don't know what happened there. Freaking pain in the ass. J.D. Rich in the house. And my usual lurker crowd out there. Again, much love and respect to every one of you out there. I appreciate you all. Twitch crowd, looks like you guys are good to go over there as well. Comfortably numb and several others have found their, found their way back in. And DLive looks like it's, it's still going good as well. So, uh, all right. Let me get a sip of my uh, Arnold Palmer. Clear my throat here a little bit. And then we will kick this off because I really want to study this as much as possible. Here we go. Ah, delicious Arnold Palmer, I tell you. I don't, I don't know why more people don't drink it. Huh. That camera angle sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, well, whatever. Um, I forgot I moved it. When it. Anyways. Hey, Liberty Bells. How are you? Big Willie in the house. Redfish, much love. Hey, Bella. Much love. Good to see you out there. KN, you're out there as well. Much love. All right. Uh, DHS censorship machine targeted 22 million tweets. Used 120 speech flaggers, scrubbed 15 platforms, and throttled dozens of emerging election narratives using a chat app. The DHS leaks was just the tip of the iceberg. The full report can be found here, and we will be reading that full report in just a moment. Here is a highly disturbing fact that is not widely uh, to the, known to the American public. The same DHS cyber agency in charge of securing elections is also in charge of censoring elections. That's right. Obama's Stasi cyber agency, the DHS, is the one who is uh, controlling the elections and censoring anyone who's trying to tell the truth about the election. Isn't that great? CISA has come to a CISA has kept a very low profile by appearing to the outside world as just a boring cybersecurity bureau, a place where even the professional hackers are tasked with humdrum IT management jobs, right? That's always how they talk about it. My buddy Chris Krebs here, isn't this him? All right, standby one. Uh, let me unboost that, fix that here, restart that, and let's go the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The agency that likes security so much, it's in our name twice. Okay? <laughs> nice. I got, I'm going to love this thread. In the summer of 2020, CISA pulled off a trick. By classifying election misinformation as a threat to election security, its police powers extended from the tech side of elections to anyone simply talking about elections. Huh. Anyone surprised? Here is the Combating Disinformation and Misinformation in Elections on October 7th. Alex Stamos from Stanford University, Clinton Watts from Foreign Policy Research Institute and George Washington, Lauren Rosenberger from the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the German Marshall Fund. Got to have one of those uh, brainwashed morons in there. The moderator, of course, is Olivia Ghazi from CBS and uh, that guy from American University. CISA had a problem. It called the first, it's called the First Amendment. The U.S. government is not allowed to sandblast millions of voters off the civilian internet because of their speech about elections. 
to civil rights violations and I want my fucking reparations. CISA needed to private sector partners to do their dirty work. And that's where the EIP stepped in. The EIP is, of course, from the Atlantic uh, Council's words, you have the EIP workflow. You have four major stakeholders, the government, civil society, platforms, and media. The intake queue, a tier one intake team, on-call data gathering, triage, and response. Just Does this seem like a like a, a small little part of the government, or does this seem like a machine of censorship? Analyst queue uh, goes into there, to the outcomes queue, and then it also has investigations and analysis, tier two, skilled analyst, team maps, networks, and provides attribution. So uh, full workflow of whatever happens on the internet. One minute of this, check this out. This is not because CISA didn't care about this information, but at... And I'm gonna, it's going to have to take me a second to test the audio on each one of these, apparently, because some of the audios are low, some of them are high, and I don't want to blow your guys' brains out with uh, sound, your ears out with sound, excuse me. <laughs> this is not because CISA didn't care about this information, but at the time, they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation was operating. So because of the feedback uh, and the ideas from these, uh, this group, um, we were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government cannot do themselves. The cooperation between government and tech platforms has been very effective in this. These institutions put together probably read, what, 60 or 70 papers over the last 12 months um, talking about the outcome of those takedowns. I think the two challenges here are, one, how do we maintain this, right? The federal government wasn't prepared to identify and analyze election mis and disinfo. There was no clear federal lead to coordinate the work because the IC, of course, is rightly limited to a foreign focus and the FBI also has very specific designations and limitations. CISA had created support but had no real capability. There were unclear legal authorities, including very real First Amendment questions. There were unclear legal authorities, unclear legal authorities. Yeah, you think? It's, I'll, I'll, I'll clear it up for you. It's freaking illegal. Thank you, Liberty Bells. God bless you back. CISA lacked the funding and the legal authorizations to do grand scale censorship and get away with it. So CISA partnered with the EIP, who filled the gap of the things that the government could not do themselves. Well, thank you very much. Isn't that nice of them? There was a lack of capability around election disinformation. Um, this is not because CISA didn't care about disinformation, but at the time, they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation was operating. So because of the feedback uh, and the idea from these uh, this group, um, we were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government cannot do themselves. Uh, there are kind of four major stakeholders that we operated with uh, that we worked beside at EIP. Uh, our partners in government, most particularly those in CISA DHS, but also in all the local and state governments with whom we operated with, with the election integrity uh, infrastructure ISAC. Um, we worked with civil society groups, such as the 
uh, NAACP, uh, MITRE, Common Cause, uh, and the, the Healthy Elections Project that worked at both MIT and Stanford. Uh, and then we also worked with the major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, Nextdoor, and the like. Um, in some of those cases, we had agreements for access to data. In other cases, we had to have individual analysts go work with them. Really? I mean, go work with them, like, like, so you sent somebody from CISA into what, like Discord? Monitoring all my stuff in Discord? Where's, where's half of my resource in Discord from the shows I've done over the past five years? Half of my shit's gone. Yeah, you know anything about that? Can I ask a question here? I'm just asking questions. Five years of research of shows. And I've put all of my show notes in, in, in tabs, little community in Discord, and most of it's missing. So that when I go back and search for a certain topic, you know, I'll have all of my articles that I vetted and the information that I've talked about on my shows and it's easy access to all of my work. So that when I want to refresh myself on a topic and reinform myself on something to bring it to the people so that I know that I'm giving them the best information possible. I have an easy resource that I can go to that has all of my research in one spot. Gone. Along with the first two years of shows I did. Gone. EIP bills itself euphemistically as a disinfo research collective, but it's important to understand EIP does more than research. They manually flag posts, throttle narratives, and pressure platforms at every level. This is active censorship, not passive research. I think EIP really helped push the envelope with things like uh, just the notion that this pre this delegitimization of electoral processes that we were seeing in the summer and early fall, that this should be against content moderation policies on these platforms. And they began to take proactive steps there. Yeah, I bet you took proactive steps. I bet you did. I bet you put me in a nice little corner and just, and just said, you know what? I don't, we don't even need anybody to monitor this guy. Just put him in a little corner on the internet over there where no one can see him. CISA, your federal government, is not just partnering with a few zealous individuals. The scale here is institutional. For the 2020 election alone, EIP had 120 people staffed on taking down lawful U.S. citizen speech about an in-process U.S. election. All of our colleagues worked on this. Um, so you're, you're seeing uh, uh, five of us right now. Um, but, you know, again, there's like 120 people who worked on this. I, I want to make sure uh, all the people in the audience understand that there's huge teams behind each of us. Gigantic team. That's great. That's it's good to know. Uh, institutionalized censorship regime. Great. This clip, one week after the 2020 election, shows EIP openly plotting ways to coerce tech platforms to censor additional topics beyond elections. EIP cited their power cards as huge regulatory pressure from government insiders and ginning up bad press. Really? I think EIP really helped push the envelope with things like uh, just the notion that this, pre this delegitimization of electoral processes that we were seeing in the summer and early fall, that this should be against content moderation policies on these platforms. And they began to take proactive steps there. We did 
get industry partners to push the envelope a little bit in the U.S. context. But how can a similar kind of pressure and responsiveness uh, be elicited from platforms when it's not uh, a U.S. election with huge regulatory stakes for these companies? You know, on effectively pushing the platforms to do stuff. So yes, there's a basic problem that they will always be more responsive in the places that are both economically highly important and that have huge potential regulatory impact. Most notably right now, that would be the United States and Europe. My suggestion is if people want to get the, the platforms to do stuff is first, you got to push for written policies that are specific and that give you predictability, right? And so this is something we started in the summer in August is as Kate talked about, Carly Miller led a team from, from all four institutions to look at the detailed policies of the big platforms and to measure them against situations that we expected to happen. Now, we're not going to take credit for all the changes they made, but there we had to update this thing like eight or nine times, right? And so like putting these people in a grid to say, you're not handling this, you're not handling this, not handling this, creates a lot of pressure inside of the companies and forces them to kind of grapple with these issues because you want specific policies that you can hold them accountable for. The second is when you report stuff to them, report how it's violating those written policies, right? So there's two steps here, get good policies and then say, this is how it's violating it. We will have our statistics, right? But I think we were pretty effective in getting them to act on things that they hadn't acted on before. EIP, the federal government's disinformation partner via DHS, brags about getting social media companies to expand their censorship policies to block First Amendment protected speech critiquing the legitimacy of election processes and outcomes. Every single election narrative EIP pressured social media companies to censor was a conservative narrative expressing election integrity issues. So DHS, the federal government outsourced censorship of a single targeted class of U.S. voters. That is 2.5 million uh, censored Stop the Steal. <clears throat> the second highest censored topic during the 2020 election was Stop the Steal. Imagine if the U.S. government didn't have their own army of digital soldiers trying to censor us and then ask yourself why the QOP exists. EIP relies on advanced monitoring AI to map out entire networks of people who spread a narrative they want to ban out of existence. Here you can see a work through of how EIP effectively stalks every chain in an election belief to censor the whole, the whole belief system at scale. Ballots in dumpster in Sonoma is the top side. Total number of tweets, quotes, and retweets and quote tweets on the left. And you can see how it starts, it starts, it starts. So one or two big accounts pick it up. It goes skyrocketing off the off the scale, right? And then let's see. So let's, um, I'm just wanted to study that graph first. This is cumulative graph ballots and dumpster in Sonoma. So this is, this is the, again, so that, what does that tell you? That there was actually ballots in a dumpster in Sonoma in the 2020 election. I want my fucking diamonds back. Trump is our president, period. Let's look at how um, this claim went viral. These are plots that we were using almost for every incident that we, that we picked up from this collaborative group, our team, every time we picked up an incident, we would plot it in this way so we could see how it went viral. And what these do, this is a cumulative graph um, that shows the cumulative spread of a particular kind of claim. And what it has is on the y-axis is how many 
times it's been shared and on the x-axis is time. And what we do is we plot each tweet on this as a shape, depending on what kind of, like what tweet type it is, if it's a retweet or a quote tweet or whatever. And we size each tweet by the size of the audience of that account. And what this allows us to do is some, not always, sometimes things take off with the random account somehow, but often you'll see these high um, follower accounts change the, the change the trajectory of a tweet, helping it go viral. So it allows us to see who is really influential in the spread of um, in the spread of a of a claim. And so um, and then so his original post was repeatedly retweeted, remixed, and reframed as it spread through other uh, influential social media accounts and right and uh, right wing media outlets. Um, there we have like uh, an account of uh, Tim Cast. I think really sort of changes the trajectory, and he's a American citizen journalist um, and a political commentator uh, who actually gained influence through his coverage of Occupy Wall Street, but he's now aligned with right-wing populism in the United States. Another influential account in this incident belonged to the Gateway Pundit, a hyper-partisan media outlet that repeatedly spread false or misleading claims of voter fraud. In fact, they I think they have something like 40 different incidents. Their domain is cited in our data, 40 different claims of, of voter fraud of different kinds. Um, and uh, eventually this false claim was amplified by the Twitter account of President Trump's son as well, and which is a common kind of piece of the trajectory. Often it would eventually reach some of his closest allies and, and, and family members and, and be promoted from there. So online participants repeatedly activated to produce and spread information that sowed doubt in the election, highlighting irregularities um, and exa exaggerating the, the impact of small issues like stolen mail and spreading false, like absolute falsehoods. Small issue. <laughs> uh, how is that a small issue, meathead, meathead? Anyways, in this photo, DHS, EIP, and the tech platforms are all coordinating systematic censorship of U.S. citizen speech in the height of an election that voiced concerns about being given a Sharpie markers to vote. Look how they secretly clamped a speech ban behind the scenes, Sharpie gate. So-and-so redacted raised this on 4 November 2020 at 1025 a.m. Description, Sharpie gate, Sharpie gate is trending on Twitter after allegations that voters were forced to use Sharpie Maricopa County, used to use, forced to use Sharpie Maricopa County in Arizona, <laughs> and that the Sharpie was intentionally meant to make votes ambiguous so to sway the election. This is not true. The ballots are designed such that the Sharpie ink will not compromise the selection. Isn't that not true? This has spread to a variety of different states across uh, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. We will use this ticket to try to consolidate all the content. While the primary reports have come from Arizona, similar claims of felt tip markers are being illegally used to sway election outcomes have been made across Chicago, Illinois, and Shasta County, California. Isn't there a problem with some of the some of the ink on some of these in some of these places? Isn't that a legitimate issue? If I'm not mistaken, here's all the Twitter accounts, Mark, TikTok account, Instagram account, YouTube account. Here <laughs> It goes to TikTok, Facebook, uh, EIISAC, which is that uh, main group that we talked about yesterday, you know, the dis distribution group uh, that Carrie Lake is talking about in her lawsuit as well, Google and Twitter. Notice the redacted government partner didn't even fully dispel the narrative 
for being throttled for misinformation. They actually appear to somewhat confirm concerns about kickback ballots, but simply presume poll workers must have followed ideal procedures after that. Here is the link to this. Hello, platform partners. We added you on several different cases of a Sharpie or felt tip claims. We are that are which are going viral right now. We will be consolidating the overall arc and all the content we have gathered on the ticket. It is affecting all of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Please stand by for a comprehensive list of links. Our ISAC partners are added as we believe a general counter narrative is needed. <laughs> Look at how frank they are with this, dude. Not only do they need to censor the tr- the truth about ink and pens potentially being an issue on ballots they start they start doing a counter narrative to fight back off of it or what i like to call shiny objects to get people off of off of that topic government partner puts in at 11 a.m do we have a running accounting of which states this is affecting received thank you on uh, one detail missing in these claims is if there were overvotes created by the use of Sharpies and polling locations, the machines by federal law are required to kick that ballot back to the voter for confirmation or correction. <laughs> so this would have never happened without the voter's knowledge, they say. What if the machine doesn't kick it back? What if it just sends it into a arbitration? The claim that Sharpies aren't read at all is absolutely false. This is why I focus on the idea of overvotes causing bleed, bleed, excuse me, bleed through, which would invalidate the voters, but not without warning, they say. So there is a legitimate question with these Sharpies bleeding through and or machines not kicking them back correctly. This whole seamless web of censorship was all planned months ahead of the 2020 election. After partnering with the DHS, EIP lined up with all the major platforms in advance so EIP could find disinformation and report it quickly and then collaborate with them on taking it down. Can't have too much truth out there. Got to have all these people working to censor it. So we have we have reached out. Gator. It's on the grind, Sergeant. Appreciate the coffees. I appreciate that very much. Much love. God bless you. So we have we have reached out and we have had two-way conversations with all the major platforms, right? So we've had really good conversations with Facebook, Twitter, Google, Reddit. Um, we've talked to TikTok. That's actually been very productive. Um, uh, some of the smaller groups, Discord. Uh, you know, there's there's a bunch of companies that didn't really exist or they were much smaller in 2016 and are now our real players. Um, so that's been good. I think, you know, our goal with that is that if we're able to find disinformation, that we'll be able to report it quickly and then collaborate with them on taking it down. And there's a good precedent for this, which all four of these organizations have worked on research projects side by side with tech platforms. Anybody getting picking up what I'm putting down here yet? <laughs> Obama Stasi. All of EIP's top targets of election censorship during the hotly contested ongoing election belong to the exact same side of the political aisle. CISA gave absolute power to censor, so they censored absolutely. Here are the actors and networks, repeat spreaders of election misinformation, and the top group here, of course, James Woods on the right. Look, at they're all on the right. James Wood, gate, Gateway Pundit. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., real Donald Trump, Tom Fitton, Jack Pasebic, Cat Turd, 
Eric Trump, Chuck Cholesterol, Charlie Kirk, Mark Levin, CJ Truth is up there. It's nice seeing, nice meeting CJ. Um, James O'Keefe, Prang Medic, Richard Grinnell, Pajama Band, <laughs> um, Harmeet, I think that is. <laughs> um, Breitbart News, The Right Melissa, Mike Roman, Robbie Starbuck, and Sean Hannity. Wow, Robbie Starbuck is above Sean Hannity. That's impressive. Um, Twitter uh, accounts that were highly retweeted across multiple incidents. Twitter has since suspended these accounts. <laughs> uh, and still ours. Uncensored on Elon. The topics EIP censored on a day-by-day basis tracked perfectly with pre-censorship of challenges to a pending Red Mirage Blue Shift scenario. Right out of the gate, its number one censorship topic was mail-in ballots, then hard pivoted to censoring ballot counting on Election Day. Here's the top side here is electoral process targeted over time, smoothed by week. And then the left is frequency, and then you have ballot counting boxes, so forth, so on. So a electoral process targeted over time. One of the explicit goals of their censorship activities, according to their own formal framework, was to stop people from being mobilized to put up legal challenges. Well, you mean they had a goal to stop any kind of way of getting legal challenges up there? Ticket creation, content documenting incident, mainstream photo. Uh, huh. Well, isn't this is interesting? Uh, those of you that went to the pit, mainstream platforms post content to as many platforms as possible, make it easy to disseminate misinformation. Alternative platforms, if content is taken down, post here and post link to the mainstream. Rumble, Gab, BitChute, and Parler. And then uh, also you can add in chat platforms and message boards like Reddit, Discord, Twitter, uh, Telegram, (laughs) WeChat. And then you can amplify those by shared by online communities. You can have an influencers pickup, such as uh, Dumbfuck Hollywood Meathead with nothing better to do with her life. Um, alternative media pickup as well. I'm a, I'm getting paid by the DHS to spread information. Like you don't understand how important I am. Uh, variety threshold in real life action. You can, uh, add uh, real life protests to it. Even if they're fake, you can have, uh, you can pause legal actions and lawsuits, and then you can have more mainstream coverage to get through them. Now, isn't that interesting? I, w- I would like to have one of these. Can I get one of these on my on my machine, please? I'd like to be able to have play with this toy. So who's the is is it Mike little Mikey Rothschild? Is he one of the meatheads that gets to play with this, or is it just his his group at Media Matters? David Brock does he get how much how much fun does he get to have with this crap? Because you know that it's the the stupidest shits coming from all of those morons. All right, now. Let me get this thread out there to you. Grab this for your records and keep that somewhere close. Um, Really well done, is it not, by uh, this group. And obviously, with with the Twitter leaks and everything going on out there, I'm going to tie this in bigger picture. But I want to dig into this a little bit deeper. That's just kind of the overview of it. Thanks for being here today, guys. I appreciate you all very much. 
Uh, if you would like that link, there it is. You can find it on my social media after the show as well. I'm going to keep it moving here because there's still lots to get to on this. Um, I had to close down. I'm, I, I'm trying to keep an eye on you guys in Foxhole, but I had to close down Foxhole again because the video it kept stopping my videos again. Um, I missed some gold pills. Who did I? Whoops. Can't donate gold pills to myself. Uh, Bitstoria, thank you for the shades. Lurking and listening. Polly, thanks for the shades. Space Gold Patriot, thank you as well. Appreciate you guys very much. Um, I'm going to keep it moving here. All right. That gives you an idea, right, of how, of how extensive the censorship regime is and also how easy it is for them to spread counter narratives or actual misinformation. Now, this is the report. Freedom for uh, Foundation for Freedom Online, DHS censorship agency had a strange first meeting, banning speech that cast doubt on Red Mirage Blue Shift election events. This was written on November 9th. Some of you may have already seen this. Some of you have maybe already seen alternative media cover this stuff. But I, my audience, I'm not sure how many of you have seen this. Put a, put a one in the chat if you're familiar with all this stuff and help me get it right if there's more that you know about it than I do. Because I'm just, like I said, I'm live digging this stuff right now. I've, I covered some of it, looked look through some of it. I know a lot about this stuff, but um, if I get anything wrong, let me know in chat. All right, summary. Network throttled millions of posts ahead of the 2020 election. That's better. Blocked emerging narratives from reaching the virality threshold. Censors boast on video of getting tech companies to ban entire categories of election speech under the threat of huge regulatory pressure. You don't understand that that's hacked information from Russia. You, did you, if you don't, if you don't take that down, that's hacked information from Russia and, and you can get in trouble. Last week, the intercept published a set of leaks that drew broad interest in perhaps the most undercovered scandal inside the U S government today, the department of Homeland security, Obama Stasi quiet move to establish for the first time in U S history, an explicitly inward facing domestic censorship bureau. What the, what the intercept glimpsed, however, is just the tip of a much larger iceberg. The size scale and speed of DHS's censorship operation are vastly larger have been reported operation are vastly larger than have been reported based on our investigation below are seven bottom line figures summarizing the scope of censorship carried out by the dhs speech control partners as compiled from their own reports and videos 22 million tweets labeled misinformation on twitter 859 million tweets collected in databases for misinformation analysis i bet i want to know how many of mine are in there i bet i I bet i got a good percentage of those (laughs) 120 analysts monitoring social media misinformation into 20-hour shifts. Nice. 15. How you guys doing out there? You guys doing good? Am I doing good out here so far? My, uh, if you're out there listening, guys, let me help me get it right. I want to make sure I tell our audience just how fucking pathetic you people are. 15 tech planet platforms monitored for misinformation, often in real time. How you doing? uh, about an hour average response time between government partners and tech platforms, dozens of misinformation narratives targeted for a platform wide throttling and hundreds of millions of individual Facebook posts, YouTube videos, TikToks, and tweets impacted due to 
misinformation, terms of service policy changes that DHS partners openly plotted and bragged tech companies would never have done without DHS partner insistence and huge regulatory pressure from government. The citations are above uh, above our just the DHS censorship network's impact on the 2020 election cycle alone. That was two years ago when the narrative management machine referenced by the intercept was just getting formed. Even the above figures, however, just scratched the surface of the full story. Imagine what they did with blood on their hands on the COVID-19 censorship narrative. While the Intercept rightly noted that DHS's truth cops now take a take on a range of other topics such as COVID-19, geopolitical opinions, it all started from and grew out of DHS speech control infrastructure set up to censor speech about elections. All of this pro-Ukraine stuff. Where do you think that stuff's coming from? Obama, Stasi, and the DHS. That started with the 2020 election, but it continues. Importantly... With the 2022 midterm elections, which are ongoing this week, at the Foundation for Freedom Online, for more than six months, we have been publishing and sharing research findings about a wide span of shocking components to DHS's speech control operations. Our investigation has spurred multiple members of Congress to vow aggressive probe into DHS's government censorship by proxy. The whole story, however, has not all been published in one place. In this report, we seek to provide a comprehensive history and network map of DHS's public-private censorship network as told through a deep dive into the first into its first mission, the censorship of the 2020 election. Along the way, we will highlight the network's role in censoring an ongoing 2022 midterm elections. In the final section of this report, we will cover a particularly disturbing aspect of the story, DHS's pre-censorship of speech that could catch cast doubt on so-called red mirage and blue shift election scenario months in advance of such an exact sequence playing out. All right. We're going to get this all on the record here today, guys. And so this is mostly just to get it uh, in show format on my platform. So thanks for being here today, guys, to get through this. However long this takes, we're going to get through this as well as the new releases in the Twitter files. So I don't care how long it takes. We're going to be here till it gets done. So thanks for being here today, guys. Hopefully you'll stay with me through the top of the hour. I know there's a lot going on out there today. So uh, I know that you have many other platforms that you could be going to and stuff, but this is a very important story that's close to my heart because of all the censorship that all of us have been through. And I'm sick and tired of nobody talking about it. So I'm going to do something about it myself. And I'm going to sit here and talk about it until it all gets on the record. Hopefully. As long as my OBS holds. Anywho. Background and history and the cast of characters. In this background section, we will present a history and overview of the key players participating in DHS's extended censorship network with special attention to its formation in the 20 run-up of the 2020 election. This story has two main institutional sides, the government within DHS and non-governmental side consisting of a web of like-minded private sector and civil society partners. Together, this network forms the DHS's public-private partnership network that is the subject of this report. The government side, Chris Krebs, CISA. The key coordinating hub for the government side is an obscure government agency named CISA, which is tucked within the DHS, and it was created out of Act of Congress in November of 2018. Huh. Great. Nominally to defend 
America against cybersecurity threats from hostile foreign actors. For example, Russian hackers. And then what the DHS or the, and then what the DOJ does is just label everything a Russian hacker and then boom, problem solved. CISA's long form name, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, has none of the Orwellian overtones of the Disinformation Governance Board. CISA took great pains to cloak itself as just a simple cyber uh, security focused cybersecurity di- directorate. CISA's founding director, Chris Krebs, was fond of telling audiences that CISA was just the agency that cares so much about security, it's in our name twice. CISA's mission was supposed to be a cybersecurity, not cyber censorship. But a funny thing happened on the way of the 2020 election. First, on January 6, 2017, outgoing Obama administration DHS Secretary Jay Johnson designated election infrastructure as being critical infrastructure under the purview of DHS protection. Of course he did, because that was the beginning of the coup going into what we're watching right now. Thanks, Jay Johnson, you globalist puppet. This designation, born out of unsubstantiated claims that Russia had stolen, hacked, or otherwise materially interfered with the 2016 election, tasked DHS with protecting election-related structure, such as polling places, voting machines, and computer systems. CISA's internet censorship power grew out of an interpreting critical infrastructure beyond its hard physical meaning to apply to the metaphysical concepts. By 2019, foreign disinformation on social media was increasingly framed as a cyber threat, to election infrastructure. This, through this framing mechanism, CISA's cybersecurity authority morphed into a cyber censorship authority. However, this move was initially limited to CISA only targeting foreign disinformation through DHS's countering foreign influence task force. But when 2016 election era Russian interference special prosecutors probe ended in uh, July 2019, and with FBI's director, uh, FBI director Robert Mueller's failure to find collusion between then President Trump and outside Russians, DHS, CISA began to change their tunes. The entire countering Russian disinformation on social media apparatus that had been constructed before the July of 2019 to censor, throttle, and identify foreign disinformation was quietly but entirely pivoted to focus inward on domestic disinformation. This foreign-to-domestic disinformation switcheroo on censorship was never widely conveyed beyond DHS doors out to the American people. It was plotted on DHS's own live streams and internal documents, DHS insiders' collective justification without uttering a peep about the the switch's revolutionary implications was that domestic disinformation was now a greater cyber threat to elections than falsehoods flowing from foreign interference. This meant that, henceforth, any U.S. citizen posting what DHS considered misinformation online was suddenly conducting a... (laughs) Thank you, PDX Patriot, for the coffees, my brother. I appreciate that very much. So any U.S. citizen posting a DHS-considered misinformation online was suddenly conducting a cyber attack against U.S. critical infrastructure. Huh. That was the legal framework under which DHS and CISA particularly drew their jurisdiction. And it always helps to label your enemies uh, domestic terrorists too. Fucking pricks. To illustrate this, 
We've put together a supercut of DHS's censorship network partners switching from a foreign to a domestic predicate for censorship between 2016 election and the 2020 election. Check this here. What the Russians have done is weaponized uh, social media. The issue is not just the Russians, but frankly, domestic disinformation. How do you think that they've weaponized social media? Literally using it to manipulate public opinion, to put stories out that are biased or phony in order to drive public opinion a certain way. Probably more domestic generation of disinformation content that's occurring than foreign. Frankly, I think in, in 2016, it wasn't that clear that the Russian efforts in terms of the actual persuasiveness of the content was all that sophisticated. I think what the Russians may well have learned is they don't have to make the content up. We have people in the U.S. who will do it. There's really two totally different disinformation attacks okay. in 2016. The Internet Research Agency created these personas to uh, take over existing groups in the United States. And then once they had established that, they would then try to push the most radical possible position. I think we talk way too much about foreign created these personas and then would push the most radical version of that. Yes, this is exactly what's happening in Canada as well. But think about that for a second, about the infiltration portion of the Q movement and the truth movement itself. <sighs> Man, unbelievable. I'm going to be honest. I think we talk way too much about it because it's sexy and it's fun and it's, it's a little bit cold war-y. Um, but the truth is that the vast majority of these problems, of kind of the problems in our information environment are domestic problems. There are problems in how uh, we interact with each other, of the norms that have been created about online political speech, uh, about amplification issues, um, about how now politicians are utilizing platforms. And so I, I think uh, we, we have like an 80-20 breakdown of 80% we talk about foreign and 20 domestic. I think that needs to be flipped. The Kremlin's influence operations has a particular resonance for me because in June of 2016, I broke the story of the Russian hack of the Democratic National Committee. Even though I'm sort of a national security reporter and focused on foreign spies, I, I the think narrative. the most significant immediate threat to the 2020 election is the domestic threat. Washington domestic Post reporter. The disinformation, domestic influence, whatever you want to call it. We are lost. It's just because of this little, little bitty pinprick that was put in by a foreign country. It's overwhelmingly more domestic than foreign uh, this time around in 2020. They must wonder what they could possibly say that would change anyone's mind that's not already being said in the American landscape. So, CISA's self-invented censorship powers against foreign disinformation went from being pointed outward against supposed Russian bot accounts to being pointed inwards at tens of millions of U.S. citizens simply talking lawfully about their own elections. The main character in the CISA story of, the, uh, of this CISA side of this story is then director 20, in 2020, Chris Krabs. After the 2020 election, CISA's leadership baton was handed to current head Jen Easterly, covered below. Those of you who uh, know who Jen Easterly is know she's just a puppet for the radical left as well. Since this is a story about government censorship and abuse of power, Chris Krabs' public statements on censorship issues uh, provide insight into the founding intent of the government censorship operation that grew out of Krabs setting it up. Here are eight data points useful to bear in mind. 
Krebs said in April of 2022 that the Hunter Biden laptops, laptops still looked like Russian disinformation and that Krebs didn't care whether it was or wasn't Russian disinformation. The important positive thing he stressed was that the news media did not cover the laptop during the 2020 election. Krebs, who administered the federal side of the 2020 election after DHS effectively nationalized election infrastructure on January 6, 2017, said that every lawyer who represented conservative clients on claims concerning the 2020 election irregularities should be permanently disbarred and banned from legal practice for life. Krebs said he hopes conservative media outlets are bankrupted and forced to pay billions of damages in ongoing lawsuit by Dominion voting systems. He stressed the same fate should be applied to anyone in the news media who questioned U.S. voting machines during the 2020 election, which he helped administer. Krebs said he per he personally canceled his DirecTV subscription in protest of conservative-leaning OANN having been allowed to have a platform on cable. Krebs said that the sitting president in 2020, Donald Trump, was a national security threat because he espoused domestic disinformation. Krebs said he feels equally passionate about the need to censor critics of government COVID-19 protocols as, as he does about censoring critics of government election administration issues. Krebs is so passionate about censorship, he even called a social media crackdown on the, on the sale of humor t-shirts that makes jokes about COVID-19. Krebs has repeatedly said... On the record, that misinformation is the single biggest threat to election security. Note that Krebs' role in government was not supposed to be an arbiter of truth. He was supposed to be a cybersecurity expert from Microsoft, yet U.S. domestic citizen, citizen opinions on social media became, in Krebs' estimate, the top cybersecurity threat facing the United States, replacing foreign hacking and malware. Of course it was. After leaving CISA, both of Krebs' new jobs in January of 2021 were outgrowths of the very CISA censorship network that uh, Krebs created, established outside partners while inside the government. First, shortly before President Biden's inauguration, Krebs stated, started a private consulting firm with former Facebook executive Alex Stamos called Craig's Stamos Group. You're such a little punk bitch. Stamos covered extensively below was perhaps the top figure overseeing the entire private sector side of the public private partnership censorship enterprise that Krebs and Stamos jointly built to censor populist political voices during the 2020 election. It was Stamos who, according to his own group's report, pitched the idea in July of 2020 for DHS to even create a government censorship apparatus in the first place. Although as we will cover, there's a reason to believe such plans between Krebs and Stamos may have started considerably earlier than that reported date. We will cover this Krebs-Stamos government academic uh, censorship relationship further below. But for now, Krebs' other role after leaving CISA was becoming chair of the Aspen Institute's Commission on, on Information Disorder to galvanize a stronger whole-of-society approach to censoring rumors and misinformation on the internet. Thus, Krebs, the original government censor, transitioned seamlessly through the revolving door of industry into lucrative partnerships with private sector censorship professionals and prestigious civil society groups whose started, stated goal is decreasing the freedom of U.S. citizen speech on the internet. Today, 
Krebs' seat at the head of CISA is now occupied by Jen Easterly, a former military intelligence official who was the deputy director of National Security Agency for Counterterrorism. She appears to be taking her military intelligence experience, squashing foreign terrorists from Tehran, and using it to squash American populists on Twitter. In October of 2021, Easterly and Krebs held a 30-minute taped discussion for CISA's Cybersecurity Summit in 2021, Continuity of Excellence. Yes, yes. Excellence in censorship. In which they mutually agree that Krebs' construction of a counter-misinformation conglomerate with the private sector was among the top structures to preserve and expand at DHS going forward. Easterly's inheritance of Krebs' censorship machine appeared to be cooperated in the ongoing state attorney general big tech collusion lawsuit versus the Biden administration. There, the court recently ruled that Easterly can be deposed because of her firsthand knowledge of censorship nerve center run out of CISA. Her seeking greater censorship done by federal pressure on the social media platforms and her reported statements about CISA's most critical infrastructure is a cog- is cognitive infrastructure, as we have talked about when this first came out. The reason why we're talking about this again now is because this all ties into the Twitter leaks, obviously, and the rest of the bigger stuff happening out here also. That case that I have been t- telling you guys about that is the most important case is the big tech collusion lawsuit against the Biden administration. And the fact that Easterly is going to have to be deposed is very, very, very interesting. And that's why Tracy Beans is also telling people to take a stop looking at the shiny object that is Brunson and pay attention to the Missouri case against Joe Biden, because that is a very, very interesting case. Moving on. Before discussing the private sector side, it should be noted that the government apparatus at DHS is now larger and scattered just beyond CISA. As we have previously reported, let's now move on to the private sector side of the equation to whom did Chris Krebs and CISA outsource the task of mass social media censorship of the 2020 election? Who runs the private sector side? How is it all structured? Well, we start here. How you guys doing out there? You guys still hanging in there? Hopefully. For the most part, you're still doing all right? I got most of you still, huh? I appreciate you guys hanging out with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out with me today. I appreciate you all very much. All right, we move here. The Election Integrity Partnership. The main institutional character on the private sector side we will focus on in this story is a counter-disinformation collective called the Election Integrity Partnership. EIP is made up of four of the most powerful and politically well-connected social media monitoring and mass reporting groups in the world. Their respective directors were all early industry pioneers in the rise of the censorship industry after the 2016 election. The four entities comprising EIP are two universities and an influential foreign policy think tank and a private social media analytics firm. They are, respectively, the Stanford Internet Observatory, Washington University's Center for Informed Public, Center for an Informed Public, also known as Center for Brainwashing, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, well known for brainwashing and money taken from China, and Grafica. One common thread connecting these four entities is that each of their directors were involved in aggressively alleging unsubstantiated claims from January 2017 through early 2020 
that Russian interference had helped Donald Trump win the 2016 election by using inauthentic bots and troll accounts on social media. Each of the four entities comprising EIP is also deeply connected to the U.S. military and foreign policy establishment. These four institutions further came into the 2020 election cycle with deep pre-existing connections to major social media companies' content moderation teams, having worked together on censorship issues since the field first began developing in 2017. It is very helpful to understand EIP's network and operations in depth because it was through EIP that DHS built the infrastructure for its current role as government coordinator of takedowns and throttling of U.S. speech online. Just to make this all perfectly clear up front, below is EIP leader Alex Stamos explaining the whole DHS EIP partnership was set up to outsource censorship through EIP to try to fill a gap of the things that the government could not do themselves because the government lacked uh, both kind of both the funding and the legal authorization. Lack of legal authorization is a nice way of saying illegal, at best legally dubious. We've covered this section of this um, already at the beginning of this through the thread. So I'm going to skip forward since we covered this at the beginning. Um, and we covered Sharpie Gate. So I got this this part of this stuff covered here. Um but I just want to make sure that I go to this, you know, make sure I get all of it covered in depth. So let's see. Um, yeah, so here's where it picks up now here. Notice that in the above conversation, we got that part covered too. The, the whole Sharpie stuff we got covered, right? So let's, let's keep it moving forward. The point is. We don't know, and even the censors didn't know, the ground truth with certainty, and yet the entire narrative was censored off of the internet anyway, in real time, in shady back rooms, in cahoots with DHS, and unbeknownst to the entire rest of the country, participating in election discourse. EIP, in their own report, shows that they throttled 822,477 tweets alone on Sharpiegate topic. And that's just Twitter. That's not including YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and other platforms named in the tickets of above that means millions of posts were impacted and eip had over 600 tickets like this just for the 2020 election alone and they went and helped the government censor covid also why are the names of government partners on eip tickets redacted what's with the secrecy don't they work for us or is it because of that lawsuit <laughs> We refer to Stamos's EIP network in this report statistically as just EIP because of our focus is election censorship, but it is important to understand that the, that the specific network around EIP plays an extraordinary role in government censorship well beyond just in the election context. For example, government censorship roles and EIP censorship jobs are a revolving door. For example, CISA chief Chris Krebs founded the two main firm with EIP, Stanford, um, excuse me, Alex Stamos, Krebs' top uh, CISA deputy, Matt Masterton, joined EIP Stanford. Stamos' uh, CISA's cyber hygiene advisor committee, whatever that is, uh, Stanford's Renee DeResta gives lectures at CISA. 
UW's Kate Starbird, heads CISA's Disinformation Advisor Subcommittee. EIP Network affiliate Maria Barsalo Lynch was just hired by CISA to help censor the 2024 election. And that's just a short list. Good to know. They already planned for the 2024. DHS and EIP aren't just a revolving door of government censorship personnel. They're also a revolving door of government censorship priorities. For example, while EIP started out censoring elections for Chris Krebs CISA after the 2020 election, EIP changed its name and rebranded as an entity called the Virality Project. VP did the exact same government censorship EIP did except censoring COVID-19 instead of censoring elections. And now that tight-knit network is back calling themselves EIP again, censoring the 2022 midterm elections this week. To make perfectly clear, below is a formal CISA conference lecture in 2021 given by Alex Stamos, top EIP Stanford Lieutenant Rene DeResta, who explains this part of the revolving door to the government partners at DHS. How long is this? 15 minutes. Okay, let me just keep moving because I'm going to be for four hours. As we will cover in a future report, VP ended up censoring with its government partners 66 unique social media narratives going viral online concerning COVID during the 2021 calendar year. Not 66 posts, 66 entire narratives censored. That had the effect of impacting millions of posts and potentially altering the entire political trajectory of the American citizens' response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Plandemic. Let's now turn to the specific four institutions and a myriad of leaders comprising EIP because the public statements and professional history of the censors is a lawful, uh, is a useful lens from which to understand the intent of the censorship. Stanford Internet Observatory, the Stanford Internet Observatory, or SIO, Stanford Disinformation Lab, is an academic center set up in June of 2019 for the purpose of promoting internet censorship policies and for doing real-time social media narrative monitoring of targeted political and social causes. During the 2020 election, SIO had 50 misinformation analysts at the university assigned to monitor conservative social media posts after SIO began its partnership with CISA. Before receiving a $3 million government grant from the Biden administration in 2021, after censoring the Biden administration's political opposition in 2020, SIO was originally funded by private foundations such as Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Omidior Network, Pierre Omidior, or Omidyar, 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 geez, and the Charles Koch Foundation. SIO is run uh, by its director, Alex Stamos, and its research manager, Renee Deresta. Stamos is a former uh, chief security officer of Facebook, now Meta, who led Facebook's response to alleged Russian disinformation at the 2016 election. He left the social media giant in 2018 after reportedly uh, clashing with top brass. Stamos' quite explicit goal is to end the era of traditional free and open internet and to move towards a controlled cable news network model where socially impactful views must be first authorized by a gatekeeper. You know, an interesting thing was almost all of this is domestic, right? So, you know, to preempt uh, the, the question that we've gone every single day uh, since election day, it is all domestic. And uh, the second point on the domestic, 
a huge part of the problem is well-known influencers. And I think that was a theme that we saw during the entire week is that you have a, a relatively small number of people with very large followings who have the ability to go and find a narrative somewhere, pick it out of obscurity, and then to harden, you know, or a, some kind of little idea, one tweet, one photo, one video, and then to harden it into these narratives. How do you handle those people is a humongous problem and gets makes the platforms less of kind of like a content moderation. And it's almost more of a the editorial process you would see at like a cable network, right? Um, and, and, and it's a, like the, the metaphor, I think, has shifted for me in some ways of the ways the companies have to act. You're talking about top-down activity that is uh, that is you know facilitated by the ability for these folks to create these audiences that are a significant fraction of the audience of a of a you know primetime cable news show. And there you go. That's the kind of people that we're up against. Are you guys doing okay out there? Thanks for still hanging in here with me today, guys. We're going through all the DHS leaks, and then we're going to be going through um, a thread here. It's, I got about another hour or so at least left. So hopefully you guys are doing okay out there. I want to make sure I get all of this stuff on the record. So I understand if you got a lot going on, but all of this will be uh, recorded for sure. In case there's any amb ambiguity to the Stamos's worldview on censorship, in the clip below from June 2021, Stamos states quite plainly that the target for censorship is simply ordinary people with large follower accounts who have the ability to impact public narratives. We find very little evidence that there's any foreign involvement at all. In fact, the vast majority of election disinformation in 2020 came from Americans who had verified accounts and very large follower accounts. So that's one of the big changes that we point out in our report um, is that disinformation is much less about massive amplification. It's honestly less about things like algorithms and algorithmic amplification. It's what a much more important factor now is that there are large follower account political partisans who are spreading misinformation intentionally, doing so in a multimedia context. So they're doing so online on social media, but they're also doing so on cable news, doing so on the radio, um, through a variety of different outlets, uh, and are able to amplify their message and to motivate their followers to go try to find evidence of the incorrect claims that they're making. Where does this leave us for 2022 and 2024? So the Election Integrity Partnership was a project just for 2020. Um, we are looking at options for these different groups to work together in the future elections. Um, but there is going to have to be work in the federal government level to decide one, who in the government is going to own disinformation as a problem? That is something that for out, at least in the American domestic context has not been figured out. And second, what kind of role should the, uh, the academic and NGO sector play here? Um, and one thing we're gonna have to figure out is not just from a funding perspective, but from a privacy and data access perspective. One of the things that continues to happen is we continue to get tighter and tighter privacy laws being passed around access to online social media data. Um, and as long as that is happening, we're gonna have to take into account um, those issues uh, and the need for academic research when passing those laws. Um, so this is something that we're gonna continue to write about and talk about as we work with our partners to figure out how the same kind of function that uh, the IP filled in 2020 can be filled by somebody in 2022 and 2024. It's good to see you guys are still hanging in there. This is very important to me, and I, I see that it's uh, very important to all of you out there as well. As noted above, 
Stamos has a close personal and business relationship with Chris Krebs and the broader DHS CISA Disinformation Network. In December of 2019, Krebs, then head of CISA, traveled to Washington, D.C. to California with Stamos and Stanford Lab was just three months old. For a personal roundtable with Stamos and his new misinformation team at Stanford, they specifically discussed election security for the 2020 election, which includes, of course, misinformation. When Krebs was terminated from CISA after the 2020 election, Chris Krebs immediately started a two-man business consultancy firm with Stamos in January 2021 called Craig Stamos Group. We've covered this section of this as well. Um, Let's see. What else do we have? We have... Daresta, Stamos' top, uh, top lieutenant at the Stanford Disinformation Lab, is researcher manager Renee Daresta. Daresta, as noted above, gave a 15-minute keynote lecture at the taxpayer-funded October 2021 CISA Summit in which Daresta des- described how EIP and DHS worked together to censor social media narratives on a scale before, at scale before, during and after the 2020 election. The prominent role Renee Daresta plays in EIP, a government-partnered internet censorship consortium, is particularly worrisome and disturbing. Before Daresta became research manager at Daresta's, excuse me, at Stanford's disinformation lab, she was research director at the now notorious scandal-laden and disgraced political hatchet firm known as New Logic LLC. In December of 2018, the New York Times exposed that the rest of Democrat donor-funded small cybersecurity firm New Knowledge had clandestinely created thousands of fake Russian bots, user network, uh, user accounts cre- generated a virtual private network to simulate a Russian IP address on Twitter and Facebook, and then mass subscribed those fake Russian bots to opposition Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore's campaign. Daresta did this, or at least the small firm where she was directed, was director did this, in the heat of the November 2017 Alabama special election, which substantially decided the party control of the U.S. Senate. It was a race in which Moore narrowly lost, and for whose loss, new knowledge in its own report took credit. At the time, mainstream news genuinely thought Roy Moore was being hacked by Russians, but it was Daresta's professional disinformation firm interfering in the election. Fox News coverage here, morons. The scandal was so outrageous that Daresta's future co-partner in the EIP censorship coalition, the Atlantic Council, called out how egregiously disaster and morally repugnant the depths of her company's deception was in effectively rigging the Senate vote with fake Russian bots. So very recently we were talking about uh, this example that I don't know if all of you have heard about, but uh, it happened in the United States and there's been a lot of reporting on it in the last few weeks where a private firm uh, called New Knowledge, which has been very well received in doing some of the analysis around disinformation from Russia, they even were uh, contracted out by the Senate Intelligence Committee to write a major report on the IRA. Well, this same firm um, actually used the same techniques that the Russian used to try to shift the elections and the special senatorial elections in Alabama last year. Uh, They received money from a liberal donor who claims that he he didn't know this company was doing this. And what they did is they set up fake Russian accounts, so fake Russian trolls, fake Russian bots, 
to make it seem like the Russians were supporting the Republican candidate, and then to also make it seem like that candidate was advocating for an alcohol ban, which in the American South will lose you an election <laughs> if you try to ban alcohol. You're mentioning that awful example of an American group creating a false example of Russian, a, a Russian disinformation campaign in the Alabama election reminds me, remi should remind us all, je that the temptation of evil is in front of every person. It's uh, not with, I spent many years in Poland and it uh, is one of its consequences. I learned this from the Polish opposition. Solidarity opposition. I was taught a lesson that we can fight them, but we cannot do it their way. To fight them. And yet, in this case, there were Americans who were becoming them. Indeed. Indeed. That is exactly what was happening. They were so influential that Americans became spreaders of Russian bot activity from these firms. The in, and all the time, the inauthentic Russian bot activity Duresta's firm generated was forensically de detected by Facebook, who banned the CEO of Duresta's firm from Facebook, as well as four other Duresta associates. According to the New York Times, Duresta's firm had bragged in an internal report after Moore lost the election, quote, we orchestrated and elaborated false flag operation that planted the idea that the Moore campaign was, am was amplified on social media by a Russian botnet. That report, available in part here, appears to show Duresta Company avidly tracking mainstream media pickup of their plot to deploy fake Russian bots and then paint their political opponent as a Russian stooge. Meanwhile, at the time of November, uh, November 2017, Duresta had a chutzpah to appear, the chutzpah, to appear on live TV. I, can't, I wish I could say it right. <laughs> I wish I could say it right, Chispa, to appear on live TV as an expert on social media disinformation, opining on disinformation in the very Senate race her firm was secretly conducting black hat, false flag cyber operations on behind the, uh, on behind the, the scenes. The whole time on TV, she never disclosed a word about the most heinous social media election disinformation campaign ever caught red-handed in the modern era her own. Well, right now there's a, a hotly contested election in Alabama, and I think most people are probably familiar with the uh, accusations against Roy Moore, who's the Republican candidate there right now. The social media conversation around that has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, over the weekend, there was a troll, we'll say, uh, not exactly a bot account, called uh, Umpire43 was its handle. And it started to tweet about how uh, it had inside knowledge that someone had paid Roy Moore's accusers in the Washington Post. And this was immediately picked up, I believe, by the Gateway Pundit and by InfoWars, and then by a number of, uh, of accounts that began to tweet about this um, online and to really amplify this message. And so this was, you know, we used to call them hoaxes, but it's really a lot more malicious than a hoax at this point. It's really trying to fundamentally transform uh, the outcome of an election. But this is the sort of thing where uh, 
one would expect the tech company at this point, Twitter, uh, to, to step in and just have a, have a look and see if it's part of a broader campaign. But on Facebook, people really believe that they're engaging with genuine people, that they really believe that, you know, Dead-eyed freak. Facebook has made this part of its, uh, its, its own brand. Um, you know, this is a place where people have to use their true names. And there is a real, you know, betrayal of their users there when people find out that what they've been engaging with this whole time um, are pages run by a front. <laughs> Yet despite what is perhaps the most dubious pockmark possible for a self-professed expert on Russian disinformation, the rest of it would go on to be the lead author of the Democrat-led Senate intelligence report on Russian disinformation in the 2016 election in November of 2019. The rest of the discredited firm also told the Senate Intelligence Committee that a Russian troll farm had secretly supported Jill Stein's Green Party candidacy in 2016 with Facebook meme pages. This claim had the effect of delegitimizing uh, Jill Stein vote tally, which CNN suggested was responsible for Hillary Clinton's failure to defeat Donald Trump in 2016 election. Huh. Interesting. Anyways, in a heated January 2019 exchange, Jill Stein called out CNN's uncritical amplification of new knowledge, Russian Facebook meme allegations. This exchange is also useful to demonstrate how this censorship consortium targets the populist left as well as the populist right. Um, look, Jill, I want to turn to Russia now. And the reason I sure. want to do that is because you may have been very important to Hillary Clinton's uh, loss in crucial states in 2016. And I don't say that negatively. I just I say you ran. So. You ran when you look at the margins in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin. The amount of votes you got, Jill, was greater than Trump's margin of victory. Okay? Tonight. Okay, can I respond to that? Because that is that is the essence of the smear campaign. No, it's not a smear campaign. No, no, no. Let me, let me finish my point. But it's I, false. I'm simply, it is false. It's, it's not false. Those attacks. are the numbers. It's true. No, but. but You're you saying know, you shouldn't be maligned for it. I'm not maligning you for it, Jill. Jill, hold on. Let me make my point. I'm not maligning you for it. I'm simply saying you were important and, and you got more votes than the margin of victory. It is what it is. Well, I think that is purely uh, wishful thinking because there are good. There's so, so it's the important numbers, to look at what the facts. Democrats don't own green votes. And in fact, polls, exit polls I'm not were saying done, they own green votes. I'm simply saying you got others. more votes than Donald Trump's margin of victory. I don't care whether you were for the pink, blue, and purple party. It doesn't matter. You got more votes. And, and, and I want to, and the reason I think but it's important. But remember, 100 million people didn't vote at all. And I agree so with I don't you. Think you can I just completely say that agree that it's an issue. votes belong to Democrats. That's a, you know, that's a problem then the maybe they, of Democrats, which then is maybe why Donald Trump's margin would have been double what it was, is what you're saying. But th let, me, let me get to the reason I'm asking you the question, Jill. Because in a new filing tonight, Robert Mueller is saying there's a pro-Russian Twitter account that used information from his criminal case to discredit the Russia investigation. So they took this information out there. They're trying to discredit the Russia investigation. It is the same Russian troll farm that attempted to meddle in the 2016 election, the same Russian troll farm that a recent report prepared for the Senate Intelligence Committee concluded tried to help you with social media posts. Not at your behest, but and tried to help you. And did you know that that same uh, cybersecurity firm, the new knowledge firm, shortly after putting out their report, which should be repudiated by the Senate Committee because they were exposed, 
exposed within a week by the New York Times for conducting a false flag Russian interference campaign in the 2017 Senate election. So you can't just take this stuff at face value. You've got to look at well, it. Well, the and Senate fact, Intelligence Committee has not facts, at all repudiated this, not Democrats or Republicans. Well, they should. This is the report that you they know, have. Just go Google the New Knowledge uh, Cybersecurity Report, and you'll see that they conducted a false flag Russian interference campaign. And the CEO of New Knowledge uh, has been deplatformed by Facebook for interfering in our elections. Mm -hmm. So you can't just take this stuff at face value, unfortunately. And here's the kind of stuff okay. that they claimed. If you can see this, this is like Jesus, if okay. you agree with him. These are the kinds of incredibly inept uh, postings that were put on Facebook that so the, me... uh, that is being claimed okay. persuaded voters to vote for me. We know right. that 90% of their postings had nothing well, to do look, with the election. No, this is a BS Donald Trump doesn't want to anybody to slam he doesn't think that anyone was persuaded campaign. to vote him wrongly either. <laughs> you think, dumbass? Stamos and DeRester are both members of the Council on Foreign Relations, which recently argued a free and open internet model is no longer working, and the United States should adopt a more semi-closed and speech-restrictive posture. The role of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who tapped DeResta to write its disinformation analysis in the DHS-partnered censorship network, is particularly disconcerting. Then head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, had a panel discussing discussion with Chris Krebs in October of 2019 at a DHS CISA conference in D.C. In that panel, Senator Warner boasted to Chris Krebs that he had just had dinner with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg the night before the CISA panel. For that dinner, Senator Warner claimed he had assembled fellow uh, assembled a fellow intelligence Senate Intelligence Committee to effectively threaten Mark Zuckerberg with heavy-handed regulation if Zuckerberg didn't do what was expected of him, especially on content moderation, read censorship on the platform. Some other notables about the influence and reach of the Stanford Disinfo Lab is that Stanford University was on the site where President Obama gave his social media misinformation as a threat to democracy speech in April of 2022. It was Alex Stamos' department at Stanford who hosted President Obama for that speech. The introduction to President Obama was given by Stamos' boss at Stanford and the head of the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, Michael McFall. Of course, McFall's involved. Obama Stasi, are you hearing me yet? Again, as a reflection of the partisan bias of the personnel DHS outsourced social media censorship to McFall was loud, proud, and the driving force behind congressional impeachment of President Trump in 2019. On September 4th, 2020, while McFall was tweeting that Trump could no longer lead because he had lost the intelligence community and the military, McFall's faculty... Uh, faculty lieutenants Alex Stamos and Rene DeResta had just been deputized the day before by Chris Krebs CISA to censor millions of Trump supporters off the internet ahead of the election. Facts like this help explain, as we shall see later, how every single repeat misinformation spreader account EIP reported for throttling in the 2020 election cycle was a right-wing populist account. Take a look at those while I clear my throat. Uh, 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 uh. Hot damn.
That is that uh, email, or that is the um, screenshot that I put out on all of my social media that was from this um, thread that was uh, that Mike Benz was talking about. So we're going to try to get through as much as this. This is a nine-minute read, so I'm going to try to get through as much of this as possible. Then that, then we got another thing to talk about. So, man, stay with me. I'm pre- I appreciate you guys hanging out there with me today. I'm going to get this whole thing on record in recorded show format, uh, how, however long it takes me. So thank you for hanging out with me today, guys. I appreciate you all very much, and I hope you're enjoying this information as much as I am. This is just wonderful, isn't it? EIP targeted the same populist for takedown on essentially every platform. The University of Washington, oh, just the top three or four, James Woods, Gateway Pundit, uh, real Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump, Mike Fitton, Jack Pacific, Cat Turd, Eric Trump, so forth. University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. After the Stanford Disinfo Lab and the second entity in the EIP Censorship Consortium is the UW Disinformation Lab. But the UW Lab is essentially an outgrowth of the Stanford Network. That is because the UW Disinfo Lab is anchored by Stanford computer science graduate and Stanford visiting professor, longtime social media censorship proponent, and research analyst, Kate Starbird. It is instructive to see Starbird's standard presentation for how she helped DHS censor the 2020 election and who her top targets Effective disinformation isn't necessarily false, but it's misleading. It's often built around this true or plausible core. Now, fast forward to 2020, we saw a very different story around disinformation in the U.S. election. It was largely domestic, coming from inside the United States. They're authentic accounts. They were often blue check and verified accounts. They were pundits on cable television shows that were who they said they were, along with you know, some other anonymous members of of the connected crowd online, but a lot of the major spreaders were blue check accounts. And it wasn't entirely coordinated, but instead it was largely sort of cultivated and even organic in places with everyday people creating and spreading disinformation about the election. And I'm gonna describe, for the rest of this presentation, I'm gonna describe some of those dynamics and highlight a couple of examples to really drive this home. So this was June of 2020, many months before the election, which was in November. Um, This tweet received hundreds of thousands of engagements and uh, likes and retweets. And those were pretty typical numbers for um, President Trump's uh, Twitter account at that time, where a lot of very dedicated followers would systematically retweet just about everything that he posted. If we look more broadly across the course of the, across the overall election 2020 conversation, we actually find a finite number of what we call repeat offenders who were were repeatedly influential, highly reshared or retweeted, repeatedly influential in the spread of content related to the big lie. And we look at the repeat spreaders, the people who were consistently influential in spreading not just one false narrative, but many different false narratives. Those are all from the red section of that graph. They are all. You saw that, right? Pro-Trump activists and QAnon accounts. (laughs) Political right, pro-Trump political left anti-Trump and this is showing the flow very interesting is it not how well they can plot that and look at the offshoots of each I think I'm right about in here somewhere hidden behind all of it those are all from the red section of that graph they are all highly retweeted uh 
um, uh, and folks with very large followings who were pro-Trump accounts. And they include um, the, the, the former president himself, along with his two adult sons. Um, they were the most among the most highly retweeted accounts of any of our misinformation across all of our um, misinformation, uh, we call them incidents, these different different separate claims of, mis of uh, distinct claims of voter fraud that were false or misleading. And we also see accounts of hyperpartisan media outlets and political pundits, uh, conservative activists, and other accounts of like, um, like QAnon leaders and others are in this graph as well. So these and other influencers repeatedly Somebody tell this dumb bitch nobody leads us. Amplifies, amplified false and misleading claims of voter fraud. They set and repeatedly reinforced the frame of a rigged election through which their audiences would interpret the events of the 2020 election. And I'm going to get to that last part um, soon enough. So, so we, we see this, the, 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 the disinformation campaign was top down and Bankler and colleagues talk about it as a top down elite driven disinformation campaign. But this campaign was also bottom up with everyday people sharing their own experiences, their own misperceptions of being disenfranchised or finding what they thought to be evidence of voter fraud. I, I thought I saw pure evidence of voter fraud. I, I thought I did, but maybe I was wrong. Yeah, maybe you should just convince me otherwise, huh? Starbird, who describes herself in her Twitter bio as an army brat, specializes in crisis informics and online rumors. Her PhD thesis in 2012 was titled Crowd Work, Crisis and Convergence, How the Connected Crowd Organizes Information During Mass Disruption Events. Her online lectures before the Trump presidency detail her work to help the U.S. government detect and halt in the spread of rumors spreading online that undermine public faith in official government narratives during crisis events. This chiefly in entails creating a network maps of social media users discussing alternative narratives of crisis events, including conspiratorial narratives in which the general public speculates about powerful people controlling world events. Yeah. Think <laughs> how, um, how pop me kettle is that fucking sentence? Especially the general public that speculates about powerful people controlling world events like false flags for elections for Senate dominance, like stuff like that. Maybe her censorship network has been funded by government grants since 2013 after the, the twin populist events in 2016 of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump starboard switched Star starboard's work switched uh, suddenly <clears throat> to focus on right-wing populists who in her research represented a collective disinformation threat around the world. Her targeting include Trump supporters in the U.S., J.R. Jair Bolsonaro supporters in Brazil, Marine Le Pen supporters in France, and more, albeit to a lesser extent. Starberg also targeted left-wing populists and anti-imperialist type, most mostly associated with Bernie Sanders in the United States and Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom. During the period, such figures were surging politically as well. Maybe she planted the, the Jeremy Corbyn uh, Nazi tag, you know. That's interesting. 
During the periods, such uh, figures were surging politically as well. In the below lecture from October of 2019, for example, Starbird posits disinformation as coming from the populist right when social media voices support Donald Trump and disinformation as coming from the populist left when social media voices oppose the U.S. war in Syria. Is that how it works? Kate Starbird's UW Disinformation Lab, most recently activity in 2022, per their website, is auditing Google search engine results to pressure Google to scrap all listing of websites regarded as challenging the 2020 era election processes, such as mail-in ballots and early voting drop boxes. You can find a copy of that report here. Recently, Starbird celebrated the tech platforms conforming to EIP's insistence that social media media, uh, posts about the 2022 elections be censorable under law, under low bar of simply misleading rather than actual misinformation. And this avoids the fumbling around job of censors having to prove the thing they want banned is actually false. As you remember, they started doing the misleading tags as well. Like Alex Stamos, head of the Stanford Disinformation Lab, Kate Starbird as head of the UW Disinformation Lab, we made we directly made a member of the U.S. government's formal advisory committee for CISA in December of 2021. Indeed, Kate Starbird now heads CISA's new 2022 Committee on Protecting Critical Infrastructure from Misinformation and Disinformation. The trick behind that subcommittee's name is that virtually every topic of significance can now be deemed critical infrastructure as a pretext to censor discussion of it. What began as election infrastructure as the genesis of CISA's legal jurisdiction in the January 2017 has now mission creeped all the way to cognitive infrastructure cited by current CISA head Jen Easterly. Note that Starbird sits on CISA's disinformation advisory panel directly with Vijay J. Gade and recently fired top lawyer at Twitter who famously promoted censorship of the hashtag learn to code on Joe Rogan's podcast. <laughs> I hope they get to go learn to code. Uh, and March 2019 led to the internal Twitter decision to ban President Trump's Twitter account in January 2021 and vociferously opposed Elon Musk's proposal to roll back Twitter censorship policies. As CISA's June 2022 advisory committee meeting, Kate Starbird recommended that CISA should now invest in external research to assess the impact of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation threats. Starbird herself stands to gain from such government investment, but such a government payday for censorship work would not be her first time. Indeed, the Biden administration provided Kate Starbird's UW Disinformation Lab with a $3 million government grant. Jointly with Stanford, just months after Starbird's lab helped censor the Biden administration's political adversary during the 2020 election. Now it appears she is using her platform to ask U.S. government for more taxpayer dollars to flood the industry that targets its taxpayers. The Atlantic Council's DFR lead next on the list. You guys still doing all right out there? You're hanging in there. For the most part, I see most of you are still hanging in. I thank you all very much. I know there's a lot going on. It's the, now the top of the hour again, and I appreciate you all staying with me. Uh, we're going to get through this, man. I'm going to get all of this on the record here. So thank you all for staying for as long as you possibly can. I understand if you have a lot going on, but um, we're going to keep through it. So I am going to keep moving. And I want to thank all of you with the gold pills out there. Space Coast Patriot, Dawn, Space Coast, Bish Toria, Paulie, 
uh, Liberty Ball Bells, Sean Joe, Sean Joe, The Fallen, Average Joe, Golden Lady, and who cares? Thank you guys, all of you guys. We're going we're gonna to keep moving here. Whoops, that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, we're going to keep going today. Hopefully you guys can stay here with me because I want to get all of this on the record. If you can't stay with me, it'll be recorded on all the platforms. You can come back and check any point where you had to drop off, but we're going to keep moving. So, <sighs> good day going on. You're liking it? You guys liking the hearing it out there? Please tell me. Give me a little bit of feedback. I know most of you are just lurking and listening, but uh, give me a little bit of feedback. You guys hanging in there with me? The voice is still good, so I'm good, which means we're going to keep moving. The Atlantic Council's DFR lab. After the Stanford Disinformation Lab and the UW Disinformation Lab, third, third partner is the Atlantic Council, and specifically the Atlantic Council's London-based Digital Forensics Research Lab. At first, it may seem strange for the U.S. government via CISA to outsource censorship of U.S. citizens during a U.S. election to an entity not even based in the United States. But the rules are different for DFR Lab, which is perhaps the most established and influential full-time censorship institution in the world today. Seems so weird to have this this public-private partnership just censor everybody that they don't like, doesn't it? These people are crazy. There's no powerful world structure creating a false reality and a psychosis around the world. No, that's not happening. A full exposition on this subject is beyond the scope of this report, but we will cover some of the highlights. Technically speaking, the Atlantic Council is classified as a think tank, widely said to represent NATO's collective foreign policy interests. It is therefore a transatlantic institution rather than one strictly concerned with the interests of U.S. citizens. However, the Atlantic Council represents a powerful faction of the U.S. foreign policy establishment in the diplomacy, defense, and intelligence spheres. It has seven former CIA directors currently serving on its own board of directors, Michael Hayden, James Woosley, Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, Michael Morrell, William Webster, and... Robert Gates, your who's who of fucking globalist scum. Former DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff, himself a scumbag. Chris Krebs' own boss when he worked for DHS under the Bush administration is also an Atlantic Council director as several other major DHS figures. Chertoff was the interim head and review authority for DHS's Disinformation Governments Board after it was initially put on pause. Oh, pause. The mainstream media said it went away. <laughs> You're not that naive, are you? It was the Atlantic Council's forward defense and future of DHS blueprint report in September of 2020 that formally posited DHS transition from a counterterrorism force to a focus on non-kinetic threats such as social media misinformation. Incidentally, September of 2020 is exactly when CISA formally began its censorship partnership with EIP. In October of 2020, the Atlantic Council hosted a live stream discussion on this proposed domestic censorship role for DHS with three former DHS secretaries, and that discussion has some remarkable moments. 
virtually every single every senior figure, excuse me, at CISA and across other EIP entities involved in censoring the 2020 election has directly participated in the Atlantic Council events, tying the networks together personally and professionally. Chris Krebs gave a talk to the Atlantic Council's titled Protecting the U.S. Election in October of 2018, just one month before Krebs was made the founding director of the newly created CISA. That same month before he got the same the CISA job, Krebs made a video to disinfo disinfo portal explaining why disinformation is important to him. I think people should care about disinformation because it's, uh, it's very clear to me at least that other governments, that other actors are, are trying to influence and undermine- Go fuck yourself. Uh, our democracy. No, really, go fuck yourself, our dummy. Way of life and our governments. And I think that's what was, is so important to remember about 2016 and the, the Russian efforts to interfere with our elections is uh, prior to that, uh, cybersecurity attacks or events had always been about intellectual property, about theft of uh, IP or theft of money out of accounts. This was a truly uh, galvanizing moment, I think, for government and the American people that, look, cyber techniques can be used to destabilize our government. And uh, so we have to do everything we possibly can going forward to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And that's why the Department of Homeland Security has been working so hard and diligently over the last year and a half in support of our state and local partners who are responsible for administering elections. We provided technical assistance, information, uh, conducted exercises, and all in the, uh, uh, with the ultimate goal of 2018, the midterm elections being the most secure and resilient elections ever administered in the U.S. In 2020, the presidential election will be even more secure and more resilient than uh, any election before it. So, to all of my Anon friends out there who have been in this fight from the beginning, do you now understand the battlefield? Is there anybody out there that is not clear about what we are up against? <laughs> this info portal had just been created in June 2018 by the Atlantic Council, working directly with the National Endowment for Democracy and 23 participating organizations for censoring election narratives ahead of the 2019 European elections. Krebs then migrated into CISA to administer the cyber aspects of the U.S. 2020 election. After Krebs was made senior CISA director, he then gave a keynote speech to the Atlantic Council in April of 2019, again focused on elections. Krebs returned again after the 2020 election. So, too, is the senior leaders of the Stanford Stanford and UW Disinformation Labs. Stanford's Alex Stamos, Renee, Renee Duresta, joint presentation with uh, Atlantic Council. Let's see what else. Atlantic Council DFR Lab was one of the first institutions uh, focused full-time on advancing mass social media censorship. Since Ukraine had been the Atlantic Council's marquee country of focus in 2014, this think tank sat, sat uniquely at the crossroads of the United States and NATO foreign policy discussions, Russia-Ukraine tensions, and the evolving role of social media narratives in determining candidate popularity in democratic elections. The Atlantic Council seized the moment after the 2016 U.S. election to massively upscale its DFR lab into the most prominent counter-disinformation organization in the foreign policy sphere. 
the figure who led the DFR lab is Graham Brookie. Brookie previously served in Obama's White House as part of the National Security Council. Brookie previously held a number of government roles at the intersection of national security, foreign policy, and homeland security. Now do you see why I call it Obama's Stasi? In May of 2018, Facebook designated the Atlantic Council an official partner in countering disinformation worldwide. Yay! As we have previously reported, the Atlantic Council played a key role in training journalists to contextualize disfavored politicians as trafficking and disinformation to provide a predicate for removing their voices and therefore their domestic influence from social media. Below, for example, you will see two disinformation experts from DFR Lab, Ben Nemo, now team leader of global threat intelligence at Facebook, and Andy Carvin at an Atlantic Council conference in 2019. They are training a room full of vetted international journalists how to spot disinformation in tweets by then President Donald Trump and in ads promoting Brexit. Senior journalists were encouraged to hold up placards reading bullshit as Trump tweets and as Brexit slogans played across the screen. And now for the most interestingly named session of this entire event. It wasn't lies, it was just bullshit. Anybody who works in this space will, I think, acknowledge that in any information operation, it's not just lies. You take a grain of truth, and they will build a pearl of disinformation around it. When we're in this space, there isn't a simple binary, true or false. There are all kinds of shades of meaning in between. Now, there are various different ways of modeling how you can identify the ways in which people are trying to twist the story. And the model that I use, because uh, it's short and because, frankly, I developed it, is the four Ds. Dismiss, distort, distract, and dismay. These are the four responses that we see time and again, which are deployed to attack people like us who come out with uncomfortable evidence. All of you should have some of these cards on the table. If you don't look on another table and steal one, that's not being used. Uh, because these are going to help get our attention. We are going to go through a set of slides showing quotes from different organizations and individuals who are using certain rhetorical devices to make their argument. And so if you go through all of them, at least one of these four will apply. Again, dismiss, distort, distract, dismay. Everyone say it with me. Dismiss, distort, distract, dismay. Excellent. You're welcome to scream, I call bullshit, too, if you're comfortable, but it's not a requirement. So with that, let's play. Keep, keep them in the air if you think you know the answer. Yeah, you got to keep it in the air. Keep it in the air so we can get okay, it. Okay, yes. Yep. And stand up and speak loudly. And yep. actually, even better, wait for the mic to come. Yep. Thank you. Well, it's obviously it can be any number of the Ds. It can, you can say it's distorting what they're saying or distracting them from whatever the issue is saying. The issue isn't real. They're just after me because as they're witches and it's e evil, I'm the injured party here. So it could be a whole lot of, lot of them. Trump's got a nice range when it comes to disinformation. Does anyone have a number one pick that they would like to mention related to this one? Dis they said dismiss. Yes, dismiss. Yeah. Dismiss? dismiss. Yeah. Are the voices? How many of you think dismiss? Raise your card, please. 
I think we're on to something here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're right that, that underneath that attempt, there are, he, yeah, he's twisting the story, he's, he, he's accusing somebody else of the same thing, right? But the main thing is what, what, what he's saying is like, don't listen to them because it's a witch hunt. So that was our first one. All right, number two. Getting topical here. Remember, cards up when you have an idea. Back here, and please wait for the mic. I probably share that Let's one far and wide. Any other takers? Any suggestions? Many, well, let's ask. How many of you think this one has distort involved? Okay, that's a lot. Any other rhetorical devices anyone wants to mention? We've got a big hand over here. Let's. Oh, were you just you just kept your hand up? Her hand goes back down. Uh, are there any others? Or are we just going to stick with that one? Yes, ma'am, right here. Distract. Ah, okay. So for those who couldn't hear, it's also distract because it's trying to focus attention on the NHS rather than the vote itself. One more example over here, perhaps. And the, the microphone is right behind you, so hang on. Yeah, we've been having a side conversation over here about in-group, out-group dynamics, and um, a group I've been part of, we added a fifth D, which was divide. Divide. Because we kept seeing it so often. Yes. Very good. Very, very good. Nice. Yes, very, very good. They're very good at dividing, are they not? In, if this is a difficult video for American audiences to stomach, just remember, you paid for it. The Atlantic Council receives U.S. taxpayer funding from the State Department, USAID, and the National Endowment for Democracy, the Defense Department, the U.S. Marines, the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, and numerous other federal agencies detailed here. Now, does anybody see what we're up against? No? Okay. Other sources of funding for the Atlantic Council include a category of energy companies and weapons manufacturers. Isn't that great? Perhaps the most concerning among the Atlantic Council's funders in the censorship context has been the scandal-plagued Ukrainian gas company, Burisma. Burisma is a company that, under, that was under criminal investigation for corrupt policies in Ukraine, the company paid a handsome salary to Hunter Biden on its board of directors as Biden allegedly, or on its board, and as Biden allegedly lobbied State Department officials on Burisma's, Burisma's behalf. The Atlantic Council was formally partnered with under a mutual cooperation agreement with January 2017, and it was funded by Burisma. Well, well, well. Such a disinformation flagger, so a disinformation flagger funded by the very company that gave monthly payoffs to a son of then-candidate Biden was selected as DHS's social media censorship partner for the 2020 election to install a puppet president. Isn't that great? Given that Biden was reputed to be in, the, in charge of Ukraine policy while he was serving as vice president during the Obama presidency, it's Perhaps unsurprising that Biden also delivered keynote speeches at Atlantic Council events and was personally honored with a distinguished leadership award in 2011 from them. And while it's beyond the scope of this report in 2018, Biden co-founded the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity, TCEI, 
which formerly partnered with the Atlanta Council in 2019 to use the rapid response counter disinformation teams to scrub targeted voices off of Ukrainian social media. Incredibly, EIP, of which the Atlanta Council was part, bills itself as a rapid response counter misinformation team to do the same uh, to U.S. social media as was done to Ukrainian social media, but partnered with DHS instead of Biden's group, TCEI. They just don't care about death, do they? Grafica is the last one, the fourth and final partner in EIP. In addition to Stanford, UW and DFR Disinformation Labs, it is a private network analysis firm called Grafica. Grafica was yet another contributor to Senate Intelligence Committee reports in December of 2018, alleging Russia undermined the integrity of the 2016 election. In its report, Grafica claimed to have uncovered unusually rich detail in the scope of Russia's interference, not only in 2016 presidential election, but also in the day-to-day democratic dialogue. My Russia. As Slate reported, the Senate Intelligence Committee has just released two new reports on Russian disinformation, revealing in unusually rich detail the scope of Russia's interference, not only in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, but also in the day-to-day democratic dialogue since. One report was prepared for by New Knowledge, of course, and the other by the University of Oxford and Grafica. Each report's specific findings are well worth close study by one anyone concerned with foreign interference in U.S. elections and our broader democratic processes. So this is an excellent summary offered by New Knowledge's co-founder, Renee DeResta. Hold on, I gotta take a look at this. It's a New York Times article that they aren't going to let me see. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, man. Oh, you're not going to let me see that, huh? Fuck. All right, I'll keep moving for now. I'm going to find I'll find that later and I'll get that out there to you, to you guys. Oh, uh, I lost my spot. I lost my friggin' spot. Dagnabbit. Uh, let's see here. Where am I? We got through a lot of it. We're almost done. So we got through Atlantic. Now we got to just, we got through uh, that part. I wanted to see that article, but it's not going to let me. Okay. In its report, Grafica claimed to have uncovered unusually rich detail, the scope of Russia's interference, not only in the U.S. election, but also in the day-to-day democratic dialogue. So you, you get what's in it, but I just wanted to read it for quickly. Anyways, note again, <clears throat> the other report besides Grafica's in that December 2018 Senate Intelligence Committee release was from Stanford Internet Observatory Research Manager Renee DeResta's former social media black ops political hatchet firm New Knowledge, who got busted creating artificial Russian bot accounts to discredit the Republican Senate candidate in, in the height of a tightly contested race. Again, now, w- Senator Johnson, <laughs> uh, are you out there? <laughs> I hope he knows this report. Grafica is in many ways an extension of the Atlantic Council's disinformation network described above. Recall that June 2019 Atlantic Council DFR lab above, where DFR lab senior fellow Ben Nimmo trained independent journalists to identify banal Trump tweets and Brexit slogans as disinformation. Well, that same Ben Nemo 
um, Nemo, whatever. Uh, two months after the clip above was hired by Grafica to reprise his same censorship role there this time as Graf- Grafica's director of investigations. Yes. To show the total absence and technical rigor in Atlantic Council and Grafica's arbitrary designations of populist social media accounts as Russian bots and trolls, the Ian 56 episode is particularly instructive. In March of 2018, Ben Nimmo publicly named a popular anonymous Twitter account, Ian 56, as being a Russian disinformation bot account because Ian 56 posted frequently online and consistently expressed left-of-center populist anti-war views with respect to NATO military operations in Syria. Because of Ben Nemo's say-so, Ian 56 was reported to the UK government. Sky News then messaged the account, and amazingly, Ian 56 appeared on TV in the flesh to repudiate Ben Nemo's Russian bot claim by showing his face. Ian 56 was simply a passionate British bloke who got in the way of censorship industries, narrative control agenda, and he was labeled as a bot to get rid of him. Now, the British government identified two Twitter accounts specifically that they claim have been pushing a Russian narrative and spreading lies. Uh, one of them we have, I've contacted, and we have him uh, now live. He's yes, called let, Ian. Yeah, let's bring in uh, Ian now. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, today, Ian. So you've been identified by the government in this research as being a Russian bot, are you? Uh, that is a 100% total lie and complete fabrication by the UK government. All right, you get it. Uh, note again, the above citizen was targeted for censorship by a private sector partner of the government, and he was targeted expressly because he criticized government actions online. Now, hold on a second here. I'm not going to let you gatekeep this because these narratives come from inside the UK government. Don't get it mixed. Don't get it mixed. They, they work hand in glove with these private partner stuff. So don't even try to gatekeep this shit on me. That ain't happening. This is effectively government censorship of social media achieved through the use of a private sector cutout. That's what, yeah, right. This cutout relationship is made all the more plain by the fact that Grafica has historically been funded by government grants from DARPA and from the Defense Department's Minerva Initiative, which effectively focuses on psychological warfare and great power competition. Well, well, well. In uh, in 2021, the year that after Grafica helped to censor the 2020 election of the Biden administration, Grafica was rewarded a nearly $5 million in government grants from the Pentagon, all to facilitate more censorship work. What is Grafica up to now? While just this week, Grafica proprietary analysis determined, based on a small, small sample of cartoons and fringe websites that suspected Russian actors are engaged in a renewed effort to interfere in the 2022 midterm elections, creating a Russiagate narrative spread far and wide by the New York Times just days ahead of the 2022 elections. 2020 election, who DHS censored how and why? The analysis above reveals that every single person, without exception, involved in the creation and administration of DHS's Obama Stasi's election censorship apparatus were all the same side of the 2020 election, staunchly establishmentarian and passionately crusading against right-wing populist energies associated with Donald Trump. Not letting the other side into the room where speech gets censored is not is like not letting the other side in the room where the votes get counted. It's 
it lets partisans get away with anything. And that is exactly what happened in the 2020 election. The chart below shows EIP's top 21 repeat information spreaders targeted for throttling during the 2020 election cycle. You'll notice a pattern in the right-hand column. They're all right-wingers. This means, quote-unquote right-wing, whatever that label is, this means that 100% of all the targets of repeat spreader misinformation by the DHS and the EIP were all the same political party category monolithically opposed by DHS and EIP insiders. And the censors were flippant and arrogant about their partisanry to boot. Below EIP as a federal government's deputized election disinformation flagger specifically termed one candidate in the election the social media death star of disinformation. It was fascinating uh, with the EIP to watch again and again uh, with these sorts of bottom up where you, you might have decontextual or you might have videos or individuals who uh, had particular complaints or concerns. Their concerns would get bundled by far right influencers. And then these far right influencers would be doing all they could to try to catch the eye of a Fox News producer. Uh, these are kind of concentric circles of amplification and legitimation, which these individuals were trying to reach through. Because if they could get to this Fox News editorial section, then it was very likely they would also grab the attention of President Trump, who was kind of the social media death star in this situation. Yes, we did a very effective job of tagging alternative media and every media source we could find with interesting and important articles all the time. <sighs> Sean Hannity, Sean Hannity's team did a pretty good job of um, collating most of those. You're welcome. It's bad enough that all of the government censorship was hyper-targeted against one specific side, but it gets much more serious once you understand the scale of censorship. The Intercept report last week cited nearly 4,800 flagged items by EIP during the 2020 election cycle, but that understates the volume of posts impacted by the last three orders of magnitude. Nearly 4,800 only refers to the unique original URLs meaning specific websites listed in EIP's ticketing system. It does not include narrative level throttling and bulk collection censorship. The scale of impact here is not in the low thousands. It's at least in the tens of millions. EIP in its own report says they classify 22 million tweets 21,897,364 individual polls to be precise as each uh, comprising unique misinformation incidents during a four-month period between August 15th, 2020 and December 12th, 2020. To get this 22 million misinformation number, EIP created a bucket of 859 million tweets discussing misinformation narratives and then applied a crude set of subjective inferences to conclude that 22 million tweets out of that 859 million total could be confidentially classified as endorsing a banned misinformation narrative. Meaning, you get it. You know, anybody who's promoting anything they didn't like, right? EIP uses a system where each misinformation incident is classified as a part of a specific larger misinformation narrative. EIP then turns around and pressures social media representatives to censor entire narratives at scale by using the network maps and narratives analysis that EIP uh, compiles shares with social media companies. Below are just a few dozen of narratives EIP targeted for throttling at wholesale. 
Dominion voting systems and swing states, 7 million related tweets. Stop the steal events, 2.888209 million tweets. Sharpie Gate, 822,000. Pennsylvania poll, poll watcher, 618,000. As just an example of the myriad tricks EIP used to shoehorn in censorship of election discussions and highlights above, you'll see that EIP labeled the entire narrative surrounding a Pennsylvania poll worker's denial of entry into a polling station as being misinformation. Their reasoning doesn't even deny the basic facts of the, the denial of entry, but rather makes a subjective determination about the political motivations behind the narrative. On that basis alone, alone they targeted over 600,000 tweets pertaining to that poll worker event for censorship. <laughs> While the video does show a poll worker watcher being denied, it lacked broader context for which she was denied which was not politically motivated. But the fact that she was denied, <sighs> unbelievable. Below is an EIP graph of specific tactics. EIP reported as misinformation, and we talked about those a little bit. Exagger exaggerates an issue, misleads stats, out of context, partisan, but it's not, privileged, shared by verified, and well-intentioned misinformation. Yes. That's just, Abe, you don't understand you're just so well-intentioned, but you're just spreading misinformation and you're lying to all your audience. Ah, you see how naive and stupid these fucking people are that you can't get through to them? Maybe now a fucking light bulb will fucking go off. I doubt it, though. But to pull off total mass censorship on one side of the election and still pretend the whole thing was not outrageous, partisan, and stunningly corrupt, EIP and DHS insiders came up with a much bigger trick. Oh, wait, there's more. See, when EIP talks in presentations and materials about its targets for misinformation, they always begin by, begin by stating they were going after speech that was fraud. And then they mention speech that constitutes procedural interference, telling people to vote at the wrong location and participation interference, voter suppression. But this is a trick. The vast, overwhelming, and statistically virtually only speech category that EIP really cared about and really censored systematically was their fourth category, delegitimization. Delegitimization was a brand new censorship category EIP and DHS came up with and pressured social media companies to implement beginning in June 2020, five months before the election. It was through this trick that EIP created 72% of its censorship tickets and targeted over 99% of the posts throttled by narrative during the 2020 election. This is because EIP rigged definition of delegitimization defined to mean any speech that casts doubt on any kind of election process, outcome, or integrity issues made all conservative and populist criticism of the administration of the election pre-banned at the narrative level five months in advance of election day. The result was that a user merely posting incidents of election issues was still committing a terms of service violation because incidents had the effect of casting doubt and thus even factual reporting was eventually banned altogether. 
Why did virtually all of the tech companies change their terms of service to ban such an obscure concept as delegitimization? It turns out government pressure and EIP insistence played an apparently massive role there as well. In this clip embedded earlier above, EIP members openly brag about pressure, ta pressure tactics G, uh, about how their pressure tactics got companies to create new censorship categories. They discuss how they exploited tech companies' uh, fear of massive regulatory pressure and bad press if they didn't play ball censoring populist speech. The goal, the gall to censor delegitimization coming from this crowd is truly something to behold. The entire EIP network consisted of professional delegitimizers of the 2016 election who dedicated their entire careers to promoting the unsubstantiated theory that Russia had stolen the election in 2016. Alex Stamos, Rene Duresta, Kate Starbird, and the entire Graphica team and the DFR lab were all personally the foremost tips of spears that created a narrative that the sitting U.S. president of the United States from 2016 to 2020 was functionally illegitimate because of unfounded rumors about Russiagate that turned out later not to be true. Gee, you think there's any ties between them and the Clinton Foundation and the rest of these meatheads? Uh, of course there is. If delegitimizing election processes or outcomes were a principle EIP upheld faithfully, all U.S. citizen speech about Russiagate or Russia tampering or interference with U.S. elections would be, would be mass banned at the narrative level, too, because such claims cast doubt on voter confidence in U.S. election integrity or voter perceptions that their vote counts. In fact... If the delegitimization principle were upheld, EIP members would have to ban themselves from the internet. As noted above, as noted above, just this week, Graphica published a pitiful analysis of just a small handful of ridiculous cartoons on fringe U.S. websites, which Graphica concluded was a cartoon handiwork of suspected Russians potentially trying to interfere in the midterm elections. That wholly unsubstantiated Graphica analysis couched in the word suspected, generally an equally unsubstantiated Russiagate narrative in the... In the uh, wait a minute. That wholly unsubstantiated graphical analysis couched in the word suspected generated an equally unsubstantiated Russiagate narrative in the New York Times just ahead of the midterm election day, citing Grafica's rumors. This process of unsubstantial rumors that may have cast doubt on perception of a fair election, getting a giant media megaphone and being amplified before being verified is exactly what EIP claims is counter disinformation enterprise is organized to stop. Yeah. Well, they have the power to create narratives, don't they? And now we come to perhaps the most disturbing section of this report. Pre-censoring all speech that could cast doubt on the legitimacy of an obscure possible future scenario five months away. The deeper you look into EIP's d data and DHS meetings, the clearer it becomes that the entire DHS outsourced censorship structure was, structure was set up in June 2020 to pre-ban speech that could energize or mobilize opposition to a future red mirage or blue shift scenario five months away from an election day. Those unfamiliar with Red Mirage Blue Shift refers to the scenario where a GOP candidate appears to win on Election Day, but then due to the counting on the following day of mass mail-in ballots, a DNC candidate appears to suddenly take the lead and win, as pictured below. Well, well, well.
Huh. Doesn't that look familiar? Here note that EIP specifically sought out that exact image above to censor from social media. For example, EIP details how they repeatedly got TikTok to ban posts such uh, posts such posts because they delegitimized the election results. <laughs> wow! Cross-platform and participatory participatory misinformation structure and dynamics. TikTok user reshares a tweet displaying misleading graphics. Yeah, there you go. Well, as it turns out, the censorship category of delegitimization, which again produced 99% of all EIP censorship impact as measured by incidents from narrative level data, had a very specific set of targets in mind. As you can see in EIP's report graphic below, from day one, of EIP's tracking data until election day, the censorship focus was always and consistently foremost targeted at speech casting doubt in mail-in ballots. And then on election day, after the mail-in ballots were in, EIP's focus flipped to censoring speech about ballot counting during the long delay in winners being announced. Of course they did. That means DHS's censorship operations specifically sought out at its top censorship priority five months in advance the exact discourse underpinning opposition to a controversial Red Mirage blue shift sequence. Bear in mind, CISA was put in charge of election security for elections, so this means the same obscure DHS, obscure DHS sub-agency tasked with election security also gained the power to censor any questions about election security. What that means is they planned psychological operations to make sure that people were okay with this scenario. <laughs> and used psychological operations to make sure that people could not spot it. Whew. Wow. That's how deep it goes. All right. Bear in mind, CISA was put in charge of election security for elections, but they and they and they had the power to censor. Okay, Chris Krebs himself said that domestic disinformation threat started in September of 2020 and was chiefly about criticism of mail-in ballots, which again lines up right uh, right with when the DHS EIP partnership started. Notably, EIP's highest number of tickets at the state level to censor misinformation related to Pennsylvania mail-in ballots. As it turned out, Pennsylvania became the most hotly contested state in the mail-in ballot issue with 3 million mail-in ballots to count after Election Day. Today, we examine another false rumor based on a misinterpretation of data, said the Election Integrity Partnership. And then the media just used the Election Integrity Partnership to say, you people don't know what you're talking about. There's no such thing as rigged and problems with these elections. And in 2022 midterm elections, EIP is tightly monitoring and working to censor discussions surrounding the delays of counting, ma of counting ballots being framed as fraud. The EIP partnerships just puppeted their way through all around mainstream media. And they are censoring, as in 2020, with sp sp special focus on Pennsylvania. Yes, my mouth is getting... Blah, 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 blah. Uh, to understand the AI technology EIP uses to track and monitor citizen speech, the below clip is a useful lens. We've talked about that. On top of this troubling set of motivations and techniques, considering EIP's 
stated objectives of their censorship, which CISA head Chris Krebs endorsed as well. In the report graphic highlighted below, you see EIP stated goals are to stop targeted social media narratives before it hits vitality, virality threshold, excuse me. So they never generate three in real life outcomes, protests, challenges, and mainstream media news coverage. This is the same shit that Katie Hobbs used to rig her own election, which is why that lawsuit is important to see how it plays itself out with all of this stuff as well. This is sacred First Amendment stuff sought out for uh, sought out for by chilling. This is a sacred First Amendment stuff sought out for chilling by DHS deputy censors. I, okay. EAP is well aware that pre-censoring U.S. citizens' debate and mail-in ballots five months before an election has the impact of devastating the ability of concerned citizens to pressure their state representatives to take legal action on changing voting procedures. And we know EIP knows this much is in COVID censorship context. They lamented that their censorship efforts weren't severe enough to stop citizens in Ohio from passing laws curtailing vaccine mandates there. So they know pre-censoring speech that casts doubt in mail-in ballots means pre-squelching the political energies necessary to organize pressure to obtain voting alternatives, meaning the ability for us to organize. Now we know why and how DHS pre-censored criticism of a future red mirage blue shift scenario. When does when and does the when line up? Okay, now we know why and how DHS pre-censored criticism of a future red mirage blue shift scenario. Does the when line up? First, in light of the premeditated pressure EIP Stanford's Alex Stamos applied to tech companies to censor mail-in ballot skepticism after meeting with DHS. It is telling that the exact same day Facebook announced it would be censoring mail-in ballot misinformation was the exact same day DHS and EIP formally began their partnership, September 3rd, 2020. This gave the censorship partnership an immediate first-order target mail-in ballot discussion on Facebook. Then the very next week, Twitter bowed to EIP's insistence and changed its terms of service to throttle mail-in ballot narratives as well. Second... To hear Alex Stamos tell the story of EIP, this multi-million dollar tweet censoring enterprise with 120 staffers all started with interns that Stamos sent to Krebs at CISA in the summer of 2020, and everyone just cared about election security without a special focus on mail-in ballots. The Election Integrity Partnership started with uh, our team at Stanford sending a group of... All right, we played that part. But this is not the same origin story highlighted in other EIP partners. For example, Kate Starbird's standard presentation always singles out and centers this below 2020, uh, June 2020 tweet from then-president casting doubt on the legitimacy of mail-in ballots. There you go. That was a Q post, of course. June 2022, when did EIP have its first discussion? Why wouldn't you know? June 23rd, 2020. The very next day. Operation timeline. First discussion, June 23rd, July 9th, meeting with CISA to pr- pr- present EIP concept. June 20, July 27th, EIP launches its website. August 12th, the kickoff webinar. August 18th, first platform policy blog post. Uh, September 2nd, operational workflow established. September 9th, earliest in-person voting, uh, vote, in voting starts 
first weekly briefing webinar in October 13th and the briefing for election officials on October 30th. Huh. November 2nd through 6th, we election week uh, analyst coverage, 20 hours a day, daily news briefings. I wonder if uh, Catherine has seen all this. What this government censorship operation looks like then is not some general election security blanket concern to protect all Americans from misinformation. It looks like in June 2020, a partisan, powerfully connected political network panicked that Americans might push back on the use of mail-in ballots months in the future and got together with government and private sector insiders to stop that pushback from happening by unleashing censorship of the internet on a scale never seen before in American history. At the Foundation for Freedom Online, we do not opine on specific election integrity issues or voting processes uh, mentioned in this report. Our focus is squarely on matters of concerning threats to online freedom. We humbly suggest, however, that America can have a democracy where citizens can speak in the light or a technocracy where censors control from the dark. We cannot have both. Mike Benz, executive director of Freedom for uh, Foundation for Freedom Online. All right, that is the full report. It did take about two and a half hours. Feedback from you guys. Are you are you hanging in there? I still want to go about another forty five minutes, if that's possible, um, to to wrap this up in a nice little bow for you guys. You guys doing all right out there? I will get through this next section very quickly but i want to sum this up in two in two or three different different important ways so i'm going to keep it moving mike benz on the 18th of december a couple of days ago had a q a that i was just enthralled and listening to pretty much every second of with you know my ears perked it was just it was really good and it was on twitter so most of you probably didn't get a chance to see it and that's why I want to tie this into this. He started a tweet thread to summarize the things that he said and the Twitter space discussion. So it is here. The January 6, 2017 CIA memo in which the only foreign influence the CIA could cite three months after the 2016 election was in fact that outlets like RT were getting lots of retweets on Twitter and video views on YouTube, here is the DNI file here, the background to assessing the Russian interference, which was written by that crazy bitch, I think, right? Uh, we got that covered. All right. Next. What happened? Ah, oh, shit. Did I close it? I did. I lost my thread, I think. Hold on. Let me get my thread back. Where is it? Shit. Um, well, let me just try that and that. Ah, there we go. Okay. I got to be careful with it. I got to right click and move it to the other threads. Okay. So there's the CIA memo. We know, we know all about that, right? Here is uh, one U.S. Army field guide on how to use ethnic and racial identity affiliations of demographic groups in countries targeted for regime change in order to foment ethnic nationalism, then territorial balkanization of the target country. 
So you see the questions in here got in depth into color revolutions, which is why we're talking about this now. This is FM 33-1 psychological operations field manual for psychological operations, U.S. Army PSYOP, responsibilities of the U.S. Army, PSYOP relationships with the command and staff, methods of employment, PSYOP in support of foreign in, uh, internal defense, unconventional warfare, special operations, and prisoner of war and civilian uh, internee programs. I will be downloading that and putting that directly on my desktop right fucking now. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to continue to talk more and more about this stuff, guys. So in the interest of time, though, let me keep moving. Jim Baker was just mentioned. See Baker's role at the National Task Force on Election Crises. What is lesser known about Jim's Baker is, um, and which the mainstream media news has not currently appreciating, is that in the run-up of the 2020 election, Baker was also the leading National Task Force for Election Crises, NTFEC, the for, he was at the National Task Force for Election Crises, really. So Baker was involved in the election cover-up stuff, too, as well. Baker's role at the National Task Force on Election Crises um, was sort of a sister organization to notoriously shady outfits also created at the same time called the Transition Integrity Project. Ah, yes, remember the Transition Integrity Project? We went through that as soon as it was released, and it showed how to do responses to the election, depending on the outcome and how to psychologically manipulate them and the rest, right? TIP spent summer of 2020 wargaming how to overturn the election results if candidate Trump won the election. As you guys remember, we showed you guys this document and tried to warn President Trump about this and his team about this as well, preventing a disrupted presidential election and transition from August 3rd, 2020 from the Transition Integrity Project. We covered this deeply. We covered this document in whole, and it was also censored. So there you go. <laughs> um, let's see. What else? Um, the most consequential action of the first turn of the Biden campaign retraction of its election night concession, it capitalized on the public outrage that for the third time in 20 years, a candidate had lost the popular vote electoral college. So they were in deep on pushing narratives that cast doubt on the popular vote victory, as well as. Uh, encouraging three states with Democratic governors, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, to ask for recounts. All of those were censored as well. As the game developed, governors in two of the three, Michigan and Wisconsin, sent separate slates of electors to counter those sent by the state legislature. The Biden campaign began a game by encouraging those three states with Democratic governors to ask for recounts. And as the game developed, governors in two of the three sent separate state of electors to counter those set by the state legislature. The GOP failed to convince moderate Democrats. Okay. Baker's role at the National Task Force on Election and Crises continued. Uh, the TIP, which shared the same explicit aims and many overlapping members with the NTFEC, premeditated a, a scenario in September and summer of 2020 in which the Biden team would provoke a constitutional crisis on January 6th if Biden lost the election. You remember that? That all came from these groups as well. Biden campaign encouraged Western states, particularly California, but also Oregon and Washington and collectively known as Cascadia to succeed from the union unless congressional Republicans agreed to a set of structural reforms to fix our democratic system to ensure majority rule. With advice from President Obama, Biden campaign submitted a proposal 
to give statehood to Washington, D.C., divide California to five states. Gee, all of that came from these people. Go figure. Require Supreme Court justices to retire at 70. Eliminate the Electoral College to ensure the candidate who wins the popular vote becomes president. And that is why ranked choice voting is go- is a problem when you change it to popular vote becomes the president. You no longer have a constitutional republic. You listening? <sighs> Anyways. One of the most consequential moves of what the Biden team did on January 6th provoked provoked a breakdown in the joint session of Congress by getting the House of Representatives to agree to award the presidency to Biden based on the alternative pro-Biden submissions sent over by pro-Biden governors. Pence and the GOP refused to accept this, declaring instead that Trump was reelected. Okay, so, so there you go. Neither side would back down. It's unclear what the military would do in this situation. So those were the TIPs. Um, potential scenarios. Remember that? Okay. Baker's role with the National Task Force on election crises as well. Even more incredibly, James Baker's sister network at TIP explicitly plotted to use Black Lives Matter protesters as a battering ram for the Biden faction to force Trump out of office. Had Trump won the Electoral College on election night, they would have mobilized um, riots. Baker's role at the National Task Force on election crises continued. Uh, just so hold on. Yeah, this this is hold on. Yeah, this is it. Okay. Um, just so no one missed the fine print TIP sought to mobilize racial justice activists for a Biden call to take to the streets, probing the Biden's campaign's ability to control these actors. If street muscle was needed to destabilize a Trump election win. Baker's role also at the task force using the same securing elections pretext as Jim's Baker uh, similarly threw off a nonpartisan cloak with the inserts about how to stop Trumpism after the election. They specifically plotted how to reduce Trump's access to media to stop him from running again. Even in August of 2020, When TIP published their election crisis blueprint, they were plotting investigations and possible charges against Trump and ending the tradition of offering legal immunity to past presidents. This was three months before the 2020 election. This is in the tip recommendations that we covered way back when it first came out. Anyways, keep keeping it moving in the interest of time as it is now approaching the eight o'clock hour. What James Baker, uh, star of Twitter Files 1.0, doing over NT, NFTEC while TIP was cooking up an election crisis blueprint? NFTEC was pressuring news media and journalists on how to cover election crises events, as you remember. Hybrid warfare, Jer, Jeris, I can't say it, Jerasimov Doctrine. Jerasimov Doctrine. Author Matt Galetti proposing... In January of 2017, that domestic populism via who people who vote in NATO countries was now a bigger threat to NATO than foreign threats from Russia or other adversaries. <laughs> we are now a threat to NATO, fam. Will the populist play wave wash away NATO and the European Union? Why, yes, it will just going to take us a little time but it will so so you're right you're right to be worried about us because we're going to galetta would later concede the whole framework for the u.s military involvement in swaying the hearts and minds of u.s citizens was based effectively on a lie 
<laughs> he says, I'm sorry for creating the Gerasimov doctrine. I, I first wrote to write about Russia's infamous high-tech military strategy. One small problem. It doesn't exist. <gasps> really? Huh. Seems like I've been yelling at a brick wall. Who's who, Where have you heard that before, fam? NATO's from tanks to tweets doctrine. What is this? I can't wait to see what we have here. It's like Christmas opening up a new document. Uh, what do we have? We have national security advisors meet at NATO headquarters on 28 May 2019 to discuss NATO's approach to countering hybrid threats. They're doing a pretty effective job of countering our hybrid threat. I got to admit, they are they are very effectively keeping people wondering what in the actual fuck is going on. I got to admit, they're doing a great job of it. <laughs> but not as good as they think they are. All right. DHS's foreign to domestic switcheroo. Here is a uh, cyber a rumble uh, video. Um, by FFL source clips, DHS's foreign to domestic disinformation switcheroo. We already covered that. We got that covered in the, the document that we covered already. Um, I'm losing my spot because I have so much shit opening up here. Okay, it is here. And then here we have DHS's declaration of elections as critical infrastructure on January 6, 2017, which allowed DHS to censor misinformation as a cyber threat to critical infrastructure. This is a foreign policy journal article, Obama regimes to moves to federalize elections. There is that article there. It's January 10th, 2017, a foreign policy journal. The federalization of state's election system is a disturbing development lacking any legitimate explanation. I read this report when it came out from Zero Hedge as soon as it came out as well. That's why you guys have... Um, this is why this dig is so important to you guys. This, this ties in a lot of uh, things that we've been trying to figure out. Shady relationship between Atlantic Council and Burisma. Here is the Gray Zone article. Of course, Biden ties into all of this stuff. D.C.'s Atlantic Council raked in funding from Hunter Biden's corruption-stained employer while courting his VIP father, his VP father, rather, uh, Burisma links, of course, there's Burisma links to all this stuff. Um, NSF is providing SBF level financial payoff to the censorship industry. Biden's National Science Foundation has pumped nearly $40 million into social media censorship grants and contracts. This is uh, written by Mike Benz on November 22nd, 2022. 64 NSF grants totaling three to $31.8 million given to 42 different colleges and universities. And now you know why president Trump has been talking about colleges and universities more recently state department, psychological operations laundered through the British boomerang back to quash political uh, populism. Uh, Cat park is a second video game produced by the state department's global engagement center, targeting political misinformation. Here is a government promo video for GEC's first game. Harmony square rolled out just after the 2020 U.S. election. Huh. Interesting. Scientists at Cambridge University designed the game on the principles of active inoculation. Research has shown that people build a psych... Okay, hold on. I'm going to boost this audio because you need to hear this. Um, hold on. Let me get this so that um, 
the volume is much higher. Here we go. That's better. Scientists at Cambridge University designed the game on the principles of active inoculation. Research has shown that people build a psychological resistance to disinformation after they've experienced it in the form of a game. A peer-reviewed study found that people who play Harmony Square are better able to spot fake news and are significantly less likely to share it with others. Harmony Square was developed with support from the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center and the Department of Homeland Security as a free resource to help communities around the world combat the problem of disinformation through digital media literacy. Harmony Square is playable in language. Play, play, I said play. Okay, fine, screw you. State Department psychological operations laundered through the U, through the British to boomerang back and quash political uh, populism part two. Ahead of elections around the world, the U.S. government plans to roll out its new psychologically manipulating video games like Cat Park and as a disinformation booster shot. Stopping social media and ideological support for populist movements such as the UK's Brexit movement. Give people the booster. Harmony Square and Cat Park inoculation effects last so long. You can brainwash yourself. State Department psychological operations laundered part three. The U.S. government developed Cat Park uh, game uh, developed game cat bark is based on psychological behavior modification research from the University of Cambridge's social decision making lab. Here's Cambridge star disinformation professor make clear their targets are populist movements in the United States and the United Kingdom. So how do we decide whether something is true or not? One interesting mechanism that the brain uses to decide whether or not something is true is something we call fluency. Fluency has to do with how familiar something is. So the more you hear something, the more it's repeated, the more familiar it becomes and the more likely the brain is to think it's true because it uses fluency as a signal for truth. So often when we talk about fake news and disinformation, we talk about elections. You know, has fake news disrupted the presidential election in the United States? Has it caused Brexit? <laughs> has people's will caused them to do things that they want to do why yes it has and it's going to continue to do that and you're just gonna have to fucking deal with it the state department's global engagement center working with, with google jigsaw and the white shoe academics to create a psychological vaccine against populist political opinions this is a vaccine for fake news an archive of a youtube link um, from Cambridge University, this is so how do we decide seven minutes long. How do, we, how do we decide what's true or not? And again, I'll get this whole thing to you guys so that you can do your own dig on this as well. It's way worse than the government portal mentioned in the Twitter files. CISA and EIP were on a real-time group chats with censorship teams from every social media platform to censor emerging narratives the moment they went viral. The game is that the government has the money and the civil society has credit and civil society has the credibility. So the government gives the money to civil society to do the censorship dirty work.
So back to the innovations in these new policies that just dropped, um, that were that were just put out by uh, now candidate um, Donald Trump. So it is really the first serious attempt that I've seen at trying to solve the root of the issue. So one of the things that censorship professionals like to say is that the government has the money and civil society has the credibility. So the solution to censorship, to get around the First Amendment and to get around the credibility and money issues, are to simply have the government give the money to civil society to outsource what would be violations of the First Amendment if the government did it. Disinformation has invaded online conversations on social media platforms. Countering disinformation and promoting information integrity are necessary priorities for ensuring democracy can thrive. Institutions and platforms have the resources to address disinformation, but lack credibility, whereas civil society has the credibility, but is chronically under-resourced. There's a lack of capability around election disinformation. Um, this is not because CISA didn't care about disinformation, but at the time they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary. We were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government could not do themselves. So this is how you had in the 2020 election, you had entities like the Election Integrity Partnership using 120 staffers censoring 22 million tweets combing 15 different platforms in real-time rapid response units with coordinated chat groups <clears throat> with all of the major tech platform liaisons with CISA, the Cybersecurity in Infrastructure Security Agency within DHS and these fact-checking orgs all together on a common Slack chat, essentially. Um, it was called the uh, JIRA uh, Service Desk in order to censor narratives as they arise. So you have to understand this is way, 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 way bigger than something like the Hunter Biden laptop story. That was a single story. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> Starting to wrap our head around this now, aren't we? The inauguration of organized political warfare penned by George Kennan in 1948, one year after the 1947 National Security Act established the CIA. This is George F. Kennedy, the inauguration of organized political warfare, a top-secret top document that's now in the Wilson Center archives, uh, no longer obviously classified. That's going directly on my computer <laughs> as well. I have some studying I need to do. <laughs> Um, uh, you think, you think there's an easier way I can, uh, cut and paste the title of this? Yes. Perfect. Sorry. I need to grab that. Uh, though it's going in my archive files as well with the rest of the interesting stuff I got sitting around and around here. If this computer ever blows up, I didn't do it. Um, where are we? Okay. We're here. So just to take a look at it, um, the State Department Policy Planning Director George Kennan outlines in a document for the National Security Council the idea of public committee working closely with the U.S. government to sponsor various measure activities. Uh, yes, okay, there you go, various activities. And, of course, this is the, um, the beginning 
of the CIA's working with uh, the federal government, excuse me, the mainstream media to launch political warfare is really what it is. Um, political warfare is the logical application of Clausewitz doctrine in time of peace. In, its, in broadest definition, political warfare is a the employment of all the means of a nation's command short of war to achieve its national objectives, to further its influence and authority, and to weaken those of its adversaries. Such operations are both overt and covert. They range from such overt actions as political alliances, economic measures such as ERP, and white propaganda to such covert operations as clandestine support of friendly foreign elements, blacks, like psychological warfare, and even encouragement of underground resistance in hostile states. I, I'm going, I'm going to re, I could read that whole thing right freaking now, dude, but I, I got to keep moving here. Um, I definitely want to do uh, more information on that. DHS is October, 2019 domestic censorship blueprint. This is a document that came from, the 2019 Public-Private Analytic Exchange Program Combating Targeted Disinformation Campaigns, a whole-of-society approach, yes, in my philanthropist, philanthropist voice. Team members include Sam Alexander from Fannie Mae, Adam Cambridge from the MITRE Corporation, S. Renee Farner from the National Oil Well Varco, Robert King from Booz Allen Hamilton, of course, Stephanie Kiefer from NC4, Kawaki Taka, Takayama, Kawaka Takayama, Proof Point, Proof Point Incorporated, Christopher Valendiningham, University of Florida Levin College of Law. Then you have Lacey F. from the FBI. You got Michael G. from the FBI. You got Katie M., the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center. Um, and the executive summary of this is today's information environment, the way consumers view facts to find truth and categorize various types of information does not adhere to traditional rules. And therefore, uh, we, we, we must control what Americans know. And we do that very carefully by controlling everything you see and hear everywhere you look. In summary, DHS, CISA, and the Harvard Belfort Center shenanigans reprised teaching election officials to censor people with different opinions about mail-in ballots and vote counting procedures. The disinformation training from the Harvard partners promote incident response teams to state and local election level, to, to state and local election officials. Make sure that you know your stakeholders uh, and making sure that you have um, a plan for res response, support, and alignment. And this is particularly important for disinformation because what you're going to want is make sure is to make sure that you have uh, the ability not just to respond yourself, but you also have validators who can uh, sort of say with credibility what the correct information is because you kind of need that surround sound in order to counter disinformation quickly. Uh, so the other piece uh, of, of the, the response process, uh, once you get kind of the wire diagrams and the team set, is the ability to actually decide, is this a big deal or not, when you're looking at a particular disinformation incident? Because not all incidents are created equal, and uh, the, the type of response that you have is going to de depend a lot on 
sort of the severity level, whether it's low, medium, or high. And so this is sort of a kind of a, a, a quick uh, three-question way to start assessing that severity level. Um, you know, looking at, you know, who who's sharing the mis or disinformation? Is this somebody who people are going to see as a quote-unquote credible source? Uh, is this something that, that voters are likely to um, share and see, uh, and is it likely to kind of catch momentum? Uh, and then how prominent is it? Is this sort of a large-scale thing, or is it relatively small? And when you look at kind of the combined answers to those three things, you can assess whether it is sort of a low, medium, or high-level uh, risk. And uh, that's going to determine exactly what you need to do. Um, and in the playbook, we have a, a slightly more detailed version of this, but this is sort of the, the boiled down version. Um, high means that you've got to access, you know, um, uh, launch your incident response team and get going very quickly. Medium is you're probably going to need to launch your incident response team uh, and 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 uh, kind of mount your response, but it's going to be a little bit more nuanced probably than just sort of uh, all hands on deck. Low is you may not actually need to respond. You might just want to wait and watch and see whether or not this disinformation takes off because sometimes it will just sort of die out and you don't want to give it extra oxygen. So there you go. Yeah, I had to stretch out. My, my leg is cramping. <laughs> um, so that gives you an idea of what Katie Hobbs was doing to rig her own election, right? DHS, CISA, and Harvard Belfort Center shenanigans reprised teaching election officials to censor people. Part two continued DHS election misinformation and disinformation playbook. Part one produced by Harvard Belfort Center under Robbie Mook, Robbie Mook. Harvard Belfort Center and Robbie Mook. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Of course it does. Robbie Mook's a little fucking uh, Clinton lackey. The Election Influence Operations Handbook for State and Local Election Officials, Part 1, Understanding Election and Misinformation from the Belfort Center. This was issued, of course, to all around. I want to see this. Authors. Eric Rosenbach, uh, co-director from the Belfort Center. Maria Bersal Lynch, executive director for D3P. Sioban Gorman, partner for Brunswick Group. Preston Golson, Brunswick Group. Robbie Mook, co-founder, senior advisor to D3P. Nick Annaway, Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Gabe Cederberg, D3P, Harvard Kennedy, Harvard Kennedy, Harvard Kennedy, Harvard, 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 Harvard. Harvard Kennedy School, Tufts University. Who else do we have here? Um, Secretary of State of of Oregon, Ginny Baranes, Baranes, Ginny Baranes, Director of Strategic Projects, Cybersecurity, and Democracy for Microsoft. Maria Benson, Director of Communications, National Association for Secretaries of State. Tyler Bray, Press Secretary, Secretary of States of Louisiana, North Carolina. Director of Election Operations in North Carolina. Executive Director of the State Board of Elections, North Carolina. Executive Director of the National Association for State Election Directors, Amy Cohen. Alan Farley, Administrator of Rutherford County, Tennessee. State Board of Elections for North Carolina. State Board of Elections for Illinois, Amy Kelly. Uh, Secretary of State for West Virginia. You get it. Everywhere. This is how they rig their own elections by by silencing the truth about how rigged they are. We established a defending 
Digital Democracy Project in July 2017 with one goal, to make sure that Trump never happens again. Anywho, there's that from Mike Benz. Then we have this, DHS, CISA, and Harvard Belfort Center Shenanigans Reprise Part 3, DHS uh, Misdisinformation Response Plan, Part 2, produced by the Harvard Belfort School, Robbie Muck. Let's take a look at this. Oh, here's the part two of it. Okay. So I'll get this uh, on, on my records as well. I'm going to study the hell out of this stuff. I'm going to study. I want to see what their, how their brain works. <laughs> Actually, you already know. Uh, let's see. Cir- CISA circulated this to state election officials to raise a censorship army. They had to raise an army because of us, guys. All right, um, there's Gene Sharp. I read that earlier from the Gray Zone. Um, Meet the U.S. government-backed regime guru Gene Sharp. Uh, I talked about him at the beginning. Chris Krebs, senior uh, CISA's domestic censorship founder with Stephen Richter, Maricopa County recorder ahead of the 2022 midterms. Uh, This is state bar associations should revoke law licenses of election fraud lawyers. That's how far they're going for instance, also, uh, you know, self-policing across groups like lawyers. So state bar associations can take action against those that sponsor the 60 plus uh, frivolous lawsuits or whatever percentage of those that were frivolous. You can look at COVID. You can see state uh, medical boards similarly took action against uh, a number of uh, doctors that were grifting on various solutions to COVID. So we've got to have a much broader focus that's not just the platforms. It's not just, um, it's not just the government, but there's also the rest of society that can weigh in. So that gives you an idea of the mindset, right? Um, and then we have CISA's top censored narrative. That's the the one that I, p- I picked up and sent out there to, uh, to everyone out there. So there you go. There is that full thread from uh, Mike Benz. Let me get this thread out there for you as, so you can grab all of those resources for your contact, for your uh, records as well. If you would so choose, you can also wait till later and I'll have this, I'll spread this out on all my social media as well. Once I, and if I can ever get done with all of this, it's worth spending the time on this because it ties it all together. Right. And that's why I'm trying to do it all on one show today. So, oh, thanks Fox Lakers. Thanks for the feedback guys. I appreciate it. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. All right. Next. Um, I want to keep all those open because I want them. Okay, uh, I lost my spot, though. This messed up all my um, planned stuff here. Where'd it go? Um, Oh, here we go. I'm back here. Okay, so um, Belfort Center. Eric Rosenbach and all of these scumbags. Um, Hopefully, that's already, I think it's already been dug on, on the chance. But the, the uh, Defending Digital Democracy Project, these are the the experts. The, the experts, the, these are the people that know better than you. You don't know what you're talking about. You must stop. In, he, you mean well, but you're spreading too much truth. You must stop. So there's that. Now, we have this today. Twitter aided the Pentagon in his covert online propaganda campaign. Internal documents show Twitter whitelisted CENTCOM accounts that were then used to run its online influence campaign abroad. Really? Twitter executives have claimed for years that the company makes concerted efforts 
to detect and thwart government-backed covert propaganda campaigns on its platform. Behind the scenes, however, the social networking giant provided a direct approval and internal protection to the U.S. military's network of social media accounts and online personas, whitelisting a batch of accounts at the request of the government. The Pentagon had used this network, which includes U.S. government-generated news portals and memes, in an effort to shape opinion in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, and beyond. The accounts in question started out openly affiliated with the U.S. government, but then the Pentagon appeared to shift tactics and began to con concealing its affiliation with some of these accounts, a move toward the type of intentional platform manipulation that Twitter has publicly opposed. Though Twitter executives maintained awareness of the accounts, they did not shut them down, but let them remain active for five years. Some remain active. The revelations are buried in the archives of Twitter's emails and internal tools to which The Intercept was granted access for a brief period last week alongside a handful of other writers and reporters. Following Elon Musk's Twitter of, uh, purchase of Twitter, the billionaire started giving access to company documents saying in a Twitter space that the general idea is to surface anything bad that Twitter has done in the past. The files, which included records generated under Musk's ownership, provided unprecedented, if, if incomplete, insight into the decision-making decision within the social media company. Twitter did not provide unfettered access to the company information. Rather, for three days last week, they allowed me to make requests without restriction that were then fulfilled on my behalf by my attorney, meaning that the search results may not have been exhaustive. I did not agree to any conditions governing the use of the documents, and I made uh, efforts to authenticate and contextualize the documents through further reporting. The redactions in embedded documents in this story were done by The Intercept to protect privacy, not Twitter. <sighs> All right, um, here we go. The direct assistance Twitter provided the Pentagon goes back at least five years. On July 26, 2017, Nathaniel Caller, at the time official working with the U.S. Central Command known as CENTCOM, a division of the Department of Defense, emailed a Twitter representative with the company's public policy team with the request to approve the verification of one account and whitelist a list of Arab language accounts we use to amplify certain messages. We've got some accounts that are not indexing on hashtag. Perhaps they were flagged as bots, wrote uh, Collar. A few of these had built a real following and we hope to salvage. Collar added that he was happy to move more paperwork from his office or SOCOM, the acronym for the U.S. Special Operations Command. And here is this here. Um, let me see here. Nathaniel Collar, non-DOD source, Twitter, SOCOM. Thanks, sure is tough to do web ops when you can't tweet. Say that again. Yemen current justice underscore AR. <laughs> they're, they, somehow Twitter banned their um, their Twitter operative accounts that's, that seed narratives. And so he's, he's sending him an email and saying, look, can you unban these accounts? Cause I'm trying to see these narratives here in Ukraine. Jeez. Twitter at the time had built out an expanded abuse detection system aimed in part at flagging malicious activity related to the Islamic state and other terror organizations operating in the middle East as a direct consequence to these efforts. One former Twitter employee explained to the intercept accounts controlled by the military 
that were frequently engaging with these extremist groups were being automatically flagged as spam. The former employee who was involved with the whitelisting of CENTCOM accounts spoke with The Intercept under condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly. In his email, Collar sent a spreadsheet with 52 accounts. He asked for a priority of six accounts. Sought Al-Haq, that's one I remember. Um, Mataba Jaded, that's another one I remember. A lot of these is interesting that these were all seeded through State Department accounts, basically. First, Horiat, Hak Kalat. All right, so anyways, you see, there's that. Okay, um, he asked for priority service for six accounts, including Yemen Current, an account that used to broadcast announcements about U.S. drone strikes in Yemen. Around the same time, Yemen Current, which had been deleted, had emphasized that U.S. drone strikes were accurate and killed terrorists, not civilians, and promoted the U.S. and Saudi-backed assault on the Houthi rebels in the country. Other accounts. On the list, we're focused on promoting U.S.-supported milit- militias in Syria and anti-Iran messages in Iraq. One account discussed legal issues in Kuwait. Through many account, Though many accounts remained focused on one topic area, others moved from topic to topic. For instance, Dala2L, one of the CENTCOM accounts, shifted from mess- messaging around drone strikes in Yemen in 2017 to Syrian government-focused communications this year, on the same day that CENTCOM sent its request, members of Twitter site integrity team, <clears throat> excuse me, site integrity team, it's hard to say Twitter site integrity team, it's just got to spit that one out because it's used Twitter and integrity in the same word. <laughs> Went on in an internal company system used for managing the reach of various users and applied a special exemption tag to the accounts in an internal log shell. One engineer who asked not to be named because he was not authorized to speak to the media said that he had never seen this type of tag before, but upon close inspection said that the effect of the whitelist tag essentially gave the accounts uh, the privileges of Twitter verification without a visible blue check. Twitter verification would have bestowed a number of advantages such as invulnerability to algorithmic bots that flag accounts for spam or abuse, as well as other strikes that lead to decrease visibility or suspension. Collar told Twitter that the accounts would all be USG attributed, US government attributed Arabic Arabic language accounts tweeting on relevant security issues. That promise fell short as many of the accounts subsequently deleted disclosures of affiliation with the US government. Internet Archive does not preserve the full history of every account, but really Oh, the Internet Archive doesn't. But the Intercept identified several accounts that initially listed themselves as U.S. government accounts in their bios. But after being whitelisted, shed any disclosure that they were affiliated with the military as po- and posed as ordinary users. This appears to align with major report published in August by online security researchers affiliated with the Stanford University, Stanford Internet Observatory, which reported on thousands of accounts that they expected to be part of a state-backed information operation, many of which used photorealistic human faces generated by artificial intelligence, a practice known as deepfakes. Oh, really? Now we're going to get the deepfakes going? Let's get the deepfakes going. (sighs) 
The researchers connected these accounts with a vast online ecosystem that included fake news websites, meme accounts on Telegram and Facebook, and online personalities that echoed Pentagon messages, often without disclosure of affiliation with the U.S. military. Some of the accounts accused Iran of threatening Iraq's water security and flooding the country with crystal meth, while others promoted allegations that Iran was harvesting the organs of Afghan refugees. The Stanford report did not definitively tie the sham accounts to CENTCOM and provide the complete list of Twitter accounts, but the emails obtained by The Intercept show that the creation of at least one of these accounts was directly affiliated with the Pentagon. M.K. Tashif was identified by the researchers as appearing to use the deepfake photo to obscure his real identity. Initially, according to a Wayback Machine, M.K. Tashif did disclose that it was a U.S. government account affiliated with SEMCOM, but at some point, the disclosure was deleted and the account's photo was changed to one of the Stanford identified as a deepfake. The new Twitter bio claimed that the account was unbiased source of opinion and information and roughly translated to Arabic, dedicated to serving Iraqis and Arabs. The account, therefore, before it was suspended earlier this year, routinely tweeted messages denouncing Iran and other U.S. adversaries, including Houthi rebels in Yemen. Another CENTCOM account, A.L. Thugger, which posts anti-Iran and anti-ISIS content focused on the Iraqi audience, changed its Twitter bio from a CENTCOM affiliation uh, to an Arabic phrase that simply reads, Euphrates Pulse. The former Twitter employee that told Intercept that they were surprised to learn that the the Defense Department's shifting tactics, it sounds like DOD was doing something pretty shady and definitely not in line with what they had presented us at the time, they said. Twitter and CENTCOM did not respond to requests for comments. It's deeply concerning if the Pentagon is working to shape public opinion about our military's role abroad, and even worse, if private companies are helping to conceal it. Congress and social media companies should investigate and take action to ensure that at least, uh, at the very least, our citizens are fully informed when their tax money is being spent on putting a positive spin on our endless wars. My Russia bots and my, that, that are, are my, excuse me, my Ukrainian bots that are actually, <laughs> you know, you get it. All right. For many years, Twitter uh, has pledged to shut down all state-backed disinformation and propaganda efforts, never making an explicit exception for the tw- for the U.S. in 2020. Twitter spokesperson Nick Pickles, there's Pickles, what's good, Pickles, in a testimony before U.S. House Intelligence Committee said that the company was taking aggressive efforts to shut down coordinated platform manipulation efforts attributed to government agencies. Quote, combating efforts to interfere in conversations on Twitter remains a top priority for the company, and we continue to invest heavily in our detection, disruption, and transparency efforts related to state-backed information operations. Our goal is to remove bad faith actors and to advance public understanding of these critical topics, said Pickles. In 2018, for instance, Twitter announced that mass suspension of accounts tied to Russian government-linked propaganda efforts. Two years later, the company boasted of shutting down almost 1,000 accounts for association with the Thai military. But rules on platform manipulation, it appears, have not been applied to American military efforts. The emails obtained by The Intercept show that not only did Twitter whitelist these accounts in 2017 explicitly at the behest of the military, but also at the high-level officials of the, at the company discussed the accounts as potentially problematic in the following years. In the summer of 2020, officials from Facebook reportedly identified fake accounts 
attributed to CENTCOM's influence operation on its platform and warned that warned the Pentagon that if Silicon Valley could easily out these accounts as inauthentic, so could foreign adversaries, according to a September report in the Washington Post. Twitter emails show that during the, that time in 2020, Facebook and Twitter executives were invited by the Pentagon's top attorneys to attend classified briefings in a sensitive compartmented information facility, also known as a SCIF, for high-level sensitive meetings. Facebook have had a series of one-to-one one-on-one conversations between their senior-level leadership and DOD's general counsel, i.e., inauthentic activity, wrote Yoel Roth. Then the head of, of trust and safety of Twitter, per Facebook, continued Roth, DOD have indicated a strong desire to work with us to remove the activity, but are now refusing to discuss additional details or steps outside of a classified conversation. Stasia Cardell, then the attorney with Twitter, noted in an email on her colleagues that, uh, that the Pentagon may want to retroactively classify its social media activities to obfuscate their activity in this space and that it may represent an overclassification <laughs> to avoid embarrassment, you think? Wow. James Baker, the deputy general counsel of Twitter in the same thread, wrote that the Pentagon appeared to have used poor tradecraft in setting up various Twitter accounts, sought to potentially cover its tracks, and was likely seeking, to a, strat- seeking a strategy to avoid public knowledge that the accounts are linked to each other or to the DOD or to the U.S. government. Baker speculated that in the meeting that the DOD may want to give us a timetable for shutting them down in a, in a more prolonged way that will not compromise any ongoing operations and reveal their connections to the DOD. What was discussed at the classified meetings, which ultimately did take place, according to the Post, was not included in the Twitter emails provided to The Intercept, but many of the fake accounts remained active for at least another year. Some of the accounts on the CENTCOM list remain active even now, like this one, which includes affiliation with CENTCOM, and this one, which does not. While many were swept off the platform in a mass suspension in May of 2016, we have Justice.ar from Kuwait. Bet he's just thrilled. And we have what is this one? QSD underscore Jabaha. Jabaha. So as you can see, these are. U.S. government affiliated. Okay, now, in a separate email sent in May of 2020, Lisa Roman, then vice president of the company in charge of the global public policy, emailed William S. Castle, Pentagon attorney, along with Roth, with an additional list of Department of Defense Twitter accounts. The first tab lists those accounts previously provided to us and the second accounts associated that Twitter has discovered, wrote Roman. It is not clear from this single email what Roman is requesting. She references a phone call preceding the email, but she notes that the second tab of accounts, the ones that had not been explicitly provided by to Twitter by the Pentagon, may violate our rules. The attachment included a batch of accounts tweeting in Russian and Arabic about human rights violations committed by ISIS. Many accounts in both tabs were not openly identified as affiliated with the U.S. government. (laughs) Okay, there's that. 
Twitter executives remained unaware, excuse me, Twitter executives remained aware of the Depart- of Defense Department's special status. This past January, a Twitter executive recirculated the CENTCOM list of Twitter accounts originally whitelisted in 2017. The email simply read FYI and was directed to several Twitter officials, including Patrick Conlin, former Defense Department intelligence analyst, then working on Site Integrity Unit as Twitter's global threat intelligence lead. Mm-hmm. In- internal records also showed that the accounts that remained from Collar's original list are still whitelisted. Following the mass suspension of many of the accounts in this past May, Twitter's team worked to limit blowback from its involvement in the campaign. Shortly before the publication of the Washington Post story in September, Katie Roseborough, then a communications specialist at Twitter, wrote to, to alert Twitter lawyers and lobbyists about the upcoming piece. It's a story that's mostly focused on the DOD and Facebook. However, there will be a couple of lines that reference us alongside Facebook in that reaching out to them, DOD, for a meeting. We don't think they will tie it to anything uh, Mudge related or name any Twitter employees. We declined to comment, she wrote. Mudge is a reference to Peter Zatko, a Twitter whistleblower who filed a complaint with federal authorities in July alleging lax security measures and the penetration of the company by foreign agents. After publication, the Twitter's team congratulated one another because the story minimized Twitter's role in CENTCOM's PSYOP campaign. Instead, the story largely revolved around the Pentagon's decision to begin a review of its clandestine psychological operations on social media. Quote, thanks for doing all that you could to manage this one, wrote Rebecca Hahn, another former Twitter communications official. It didn't seem to get too much traction beyond Verge, CNN, WAPO editors promoting. The U.S. military and the intelligence community have long pursued a strategy of fabricated online personas and third parties to amplify certain narratives in foreign countries. The idea being that authentic-looking Persian-language news portal or a local Afghan woman would have greater organic influence than an official Pentagon press release. Military online propaganda efforts have largely been governed by a 2006 memorandum. This memo... That you can see here is from the Deputy Secretary of Defense Memorandum for Secretaries of Military Departments from June 8th, 2017. And interactive internet activities are essential part of DOD's responsibilities to provide information to the public, shape the security environment, and support military operations. This policy provides authority and guidance for those activities. Interesting. Intellectual property, commercial gain, media, contractor involvement, quality assurance, attribution, U.S. attribution, so forth. Periodic review, best practices, and exceptions. Um, I'm not sure who was uh, DOD back then, but anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, All right, what else do we have here? The memo notes that the Defense Department's internet activities should openly acknowledge U.S. involvement except in cases when a combatant commander believes that it will not be possible due to operational considerations. This method of non-disclosure, the memo states, is the only authorized for operations on the global war on terrorism or when specified in other Secretary of Defense executive order or when specified in other Secretary of Defense execute orders. 
in the, in the process of ongoing military operations, basically. All right. In 2019, lawmakers passed a measure known as Section 1631, a reference to a provision of the National Defense Authorization Act, further legally affirming clandestine psychological operations by the military in a bid to counter online disinformation campaigns by Russia, China, and other foreign adversaries. In 2008, the U.S. Special Operations Command opened a request for a service to provide web-based influence products and tools in support of strategic and long-term U.S. government goals and objectives. The contract referred to as the Trans-Regional Web Web Initiative, the Trans-Regional Web Initiative, an effort to create online news sites designed to win hearts and minds in the battle to counter Russian influence in Central Asia and global Islamic terrorism. The contract was initially carried out by General Dynamics Information Technology, a subsidiary of the defense contractor General Dynamics, in connection with CENTCOM communication offices in Washington, D.C. and in Tampa, Florida. The program, known as WebOps, run by a defense contractor known as Colsa Corporation. Let me see this. I'm losing some of you now. It's getting late, huh? I know, it's getting kind of late. But I'm going to uh, finish wrapping this up here. Um, I just lost wherever the hell that went. Crap. I got lots of good stuff open here now, huh? I'm getting lost in all the crap I have open. All right, um... Run by the, let's see, is this it here? Ah, yep, that was it. Okay. Congress probes ISIS counter-propaganda. This is from the Detroit News. Okay. Um, let's see. Was used to create fictitious online identities designated to counter online recruitment efforts by ISIS and other terrorist networks. The Intercept spoke to a former employee of a contractor on the condition of anonymity for legal protection engaged in these online propaganda networks for trans regional web initiative. He described a loose newsroom style operation employing formal journalists operating out of generic suburban office building. Generally, what happens at the time when I was there, CENTCOM will develop a list of messaging points that they want us to focus on, said the contractor. Basically, they would, uh, we, we want you to focus on, say, counterterrorism and a general framework that we want to talk about. From there, he said, supervisors would help craft content that was uh, distributed throughout a network of CENTCOM-controlled websites and social media accounts. As the contractors created content to support narratives from military command, they were instructed to tag each content item with a specific military objective. Generally, the contractor said the news items he created were technically factual, but always crafted in a way that closely reflected the Pentagon's goals. Which is what I've been trying to tell people who do OSINT today in Ukraine. But anyways... We have some pressure from CENTCOM to push stories, he added, while noting that not, uh, that he worked at the sites years ago before the transition to more covert operations. At the time, they weren't doing any of the black hat stuff, he said. This story has been updated with information providing CENTCOM, uh, prevented by CENTCOM following the public. So CENTCOM made him edit this article. So there you go. There's that. All right. Then we have this. Um, okay. We already got that covered. Um, I mean, this is just mind blowing how much, what we're up against to try to get the truth out there. 
Twitter files part eight is part of all of this as well. How Twitter Twitter quietly added the Pentagon's covert online psyop campaign, despite promises to shut down the covert state-run propaganda networks. Twitter's docs show that social media giant directly assisted U.S. military influence operations. That is the thread that was put out in Twitter files eight. The article I just read for you is from the same guy who put Twitter eight out. So we just covered that, and that means we finally got it all wrapped up, guys. Phew. Woo-saw for a second. Man, how's that go for you? How does that wrap it up into a big little ball for you? You picking up what I'm putting down there? Do you now see what we are up against? Do you now see the bigger picture of the psychological operations and how we have all been manipulated no matter what you think? We have all been manipulated by this. We must be able to break outside of our confirmation bias zones we must be able to break outside of the controlled programming and narrative that all of us are victim to. Nobody is immune to it. Nobody. You guys have been just amazing with your support today throughout the whole show today. I'm glad that you guys stayed with me for the whole time. I'm glad that you guys got a chance to hear all of this stuff. I will be continuing to dig more and more and more into the DHS leaks, and I will bring you... Much more information, including interviews on this topic, going into, um, I don't know, as soon as I can, man. But right now, I need the bathroom. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I appreciate you all. The, the Rumble crowd, you guys have stayed with me throughout all of this. I appreciate you all. Thank you for spending the time with me today, and I appreciate it. Uh, we got it all wrapped up into a nice little bowl for you guys today. So that's all I had for you. So you're welcome to head out. Thank you guys very much for hanging out with me. If you get a chance... Spread the word about this show far and wide. Make sure people hear about this show. It all sums it up into a nice big bowl for you. Hunter, Deb, Chris, uh, com Comfortably Numb, Deplora, Laura, and Johnny B, as well as Deb and many others over there on Twitch. Thank you all very much for being here today, guys. I appreciate it. As well as everyone over there on uh, the DLive crowd, Fox Laker, SSD69, and the rest. Poipusful, Scorp Rat, the Fallen One, dropping a cookie on me, Punky Custer. Punky, uh, Hopefully you guys had a chance to hear all of that. I am just exhausted and I want to let my, my voice get a rest here, but I want to say special thank yous to you all as I let the scratch off go for you guys. I know it's been a long day and you guys have, have been hanging out. Come on, you stupid thing. Thank you. <sighs> thank you all for being here with me today. Punky Custer, the fallen one, Scorp Red, Poipusful, Woken Walked, Space Coast Patriot, J-Bell dropping a bunch on me, Woken Walked, Pew Punky Custer, and many others. Uh, let's see. Punky Custer again. I missed a bunch. Thank you all for your support today. I appreciate you all very much. It means very much to me that you guys help support in any kind of way. Most importantly, please, please, please help spread the word about this show. Help spread the word about the DHS leaks and help spread the word about how this all ties in to what we are all up against these days. This is the big picture of this show should be from your own mind how you and all of us are being manipulated in this world. And with that, I want to say... Much love, and God bless you all. Thank you for hanging out with me for an extended live dig on the DHS leaks. If you missed it, you really need to go back and watch it all. And with that, I want to say much love, and God bless you all. Thank you all for joining me again for an extended dig today. We'll see you guys back here tomorrow for another edition of Uncensored Abe. Keep an eye on my social media to know what time for sure. Probably 4 Central. We'll see. And with that, God bless you all. Goodbye. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation.
relish the opportunity to be an outsider. Embrace that label. Being an outsider is fine. Embrace the label. Because it's the outsiders who change the world and who make a real and lasting difference.